It's the Hitchcock podcast that can be described as the one with the most curse words. Its host is a lonely freak who should get a life. But it has resurrected me, the Jimster, in a silly imitation. This is Jimmy Stewart, and I'm here to tell you about a special Shamley Silhouette event. Here to tell you all about it is our host, Zach Eastman. Thank you, Jimmy, for that unique introduction. I have now been called a lonely freak who should get a life by the star of It's a Wonderful Life. That's uh, that's a tough pill to swallow. Uh, anyway, welcome to the Shamley Silhouette. My name is Zach Eastman. Um, so um, I'm recording this new intro uh, for this particular episode uh, to explain how this episode is going to work. Um, to also address how the Shamley Silhouette is going to change going forward due to the pandemic we find ourselves in. And also to talk a little bit about uh, why I started the show and also to uh, therefore give appreciation to uh, the uh, forces in my life that have made it possible. So um, we find ourselves in a pandemic. It's very strange, very scary, um, very tension-fueled time uh, that I don't even think the master of suspense could have concocted. Uh, and he was a guy who made a movie about birds attacking people. So if anybody could come up with a scary concept, it's him. But I don't think even he could have foreseen this this happening. Um, so, um, but regardless, we find ourselves in this situation. It's scary. It's uh, frightening. Um, and uh, it's changing the way a lot of people function creatively and artistically. Um, the good news is, is that a lot of people, some who have been listening to this show and also other people that I just know from the creative com community, um, have been finding ways to create art in different and unique ways as a result of this pandemic and being stuck in their homes and um, waiting for this to subside. Um, I've seen people singing songs, creating music videos, creating short films inside of isolation. Uh, I've, I've heard podcasts that have uh, been able to overcome the inability to meet in person to record and still talk about the conversations that uh, fascinate them and delight them and it's been a fantastic treat uh, to see the creativity blossom amidst this sad period um, and that's an important thing because creativity and art is the foremost thing that needs to be staying alive amidst this sort of tragedy and uh, crisis that we find ourselves in because once the art dies uh, the ability to express our innermost feelings and fears and hopes dies so uh, it's a very important thing for this to continue um, uh, throughout the entire creative community. Um, does the Shamley Silhouette fall into that? I don't know. It's just another nerd in his basement talking about Alfred Hitchcock. But regardless, I'm going to keep doing it anyway because it makes me happy. <coughs> um, on that front, I'm, I've never uh, fully talked about um, uh, the reasons for starting a Hitchcock podcast, uh, and I wanted to kind of uh, give you a little bit of background info uh, because I think it's important uh, to the things that are going to... Uh, happen going forward with the Shamley Silhouette. So uh, I grew up uh, a uh, sad little lonely kid who enjoyed Golden Age Hollywood, mainly because my grandfather got me into it. Uh, old time radio as well, um, which I've been very vocal about that on Real Nerds Podcast as well. 
And uh, these uh, films of the Golden Age era uh, were a big thrill in my life, like just watching this, you know, watching this amazing uh, collision of actors, producers, and directors telling these thrilling stories, uh, black and white or color, uh, that just kind of, that still hold a charm to this day. What fascinated me was that they were still so entertaining uh, and delightful uh, as much as an Indiana Jones or a Star Wars. They still had the ability to capture my attention. And I love cinema from all ages. Um, but the Golden Age in particular is something that I find very fascinating because it's the formation of what we get down the line with your Star Wars, your MCUs, uh, your James Bonds even. Um, you know, Hitchcock was considered to direct a James Bond movie. There's probably a good reason for that, guys. Um, but um, obviously, as time goes on and classics are reevaluated and new classics are anointed, um, the discussion comes, well, which of these classics still sticks around best in our minds? And which ones don't necessarily work. Um, and I find that um, obviously there are a lot of films from this era that have their problems. But uh, there's also a lot that can teach um, how to make films going forward and also lessons you can still kind of lift uh, from the past and apply to the future. Um, uh, no better example of that than Alfred Hitchcock. And primarily this podcast started as, a, as an attempt for me to talk about Hitchcock, one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, but as I started forming it, I realized that it was mainly also for me to discuss the Golden Age Hollywood period. Uh, so um, by by coincidence um, and, you know, almost design, the, the two ideas were able to collide and create what has become the Shamley Silhouette, um, a dissection of Alfred Hitchcock's films from a modern perspective um, that, while appreciative, still find a way to dissect and deconstruct things that work and don't work from a modern context um, all while maintaining as much respect as possible um, and Hitchcock is a filmmaker that you know influenced me deeply as a youngster whether it was screaming my pants off during the birds or being thrilled by Psycho because um, it's true like Psycho is a film that scared the pants out of me um, and I even knew the ending already but it still just terrified me because I hadn't seen anything like that before um, and I wouldn't see anything like it again till Halloween, uh, which became an even bigger influence in my life. Um, so a lot of stuff starts with Hitchcock. And uh, a lot of stuff that Hitchcock took from the past got applied to his films. So the cycle of influence goes on evermore. Um, so based around all that, we have talked a lot about different facets of Hitchcock. Um, we've talked about different motifs in his work. Um, we've talked about... Uh, the different stars he's worked with, um, how he would craft a film and construct a film. And uh, prior to this pandemic, I had recorded a few prior episodes that will that will be released in the coming weeks. Um, but at a certain point, it stopped because I was still trying to form the next series of things as we got closer to the finale. Uh, on that note, I want to point out that I did record the final episode in advance um, which is not a dissection of a film, but actually a broad conversation about Hitchcock and his legacy uh, with a guest that I am not going to reveal just yet because I kind of want to uh, build a little suspense there. But um, suffice it to say, the conversation that I had with this person was insightful and uh, gave me pause as I examined how I've been dissecting Hitchcock and um, how to proceed going forward. So uh, in a sense... The final episode uh, 
is going to heavily influence the episodes that will come before it. So may not be the best podcasting in the world, but hey, sometimes that's the way things work when it comes to scheduling. Um, and uh, amidst the pandemic we find ourselves in, I'm going to take the opportunity to continue the Shamley Silhouette regardless of the ability to get people inside uh, the studios in order to record. Um, I have a few remote options set up with returning guests Aaron Pendergast and Marshall Rosales, who will both be coming back to discuss different films with me. Um, also, some additional guests um, still working those things out. I'm also going to try to do some commentaries, uh, maybe even some um, isolated episodes about different figures in the Hitchcock legacy, whether it would be uh, Robert Burks or uh, Edith Head or, most importantly, Alma Revel, uh, which will all uh, be a fascinating uh, and uh, intriguing new challenge for me as a podcaster, but also as just a person who likes digging into the minutia of film history. Um, so on that note, though, um, we find ourselves to today's episode. And the question that we find ourselves at is, well, what's a good way for the Shamley Silhouette to cure your quarantine blues? Um, obviously, I could do uh, just a regular episode and... Uh, not make it special in any way. However, <clears throat> amongst the episodes that were going to be released in this latest cycle, uh, two of them were Jimmy Stewart episodes. They were going to come out back to back, and they would basically wrap up Jimmy Stewart's involvement in the Shamley Silhouette. Uh, and uh, Jimmy Stewart has been an indelible part of this show, um, and one of the delights of uh, doing this show is that I get to tap into that Jimmy Stewart voice that people seem to like. Um, I don't know why you think it's great. Y'all are fucking crazy. Um, regardless, I enjoy uh, getting to do the imitation and having him say fucked up things constantly on the show. So um, these last two episodes would wrap up the Jimmy Stewart discussion within the canon of Hitchcock. Um, and I figured, well, what better way to send Jimmy off than with the 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 special event that he so clearly deserves? So uh, today on the Shamley Silhouette, you're going to hear not one but two episodes back to back. Uh, first, you're going to hear episode 12, which features Andrew Sanders of Pop Culture Brew and returning guest Aaron Pendergast. Uh, and we're going to be talking about The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1934 and then Jimmy Stewart's The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1956. So it's going to be a, 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 a discussion of remakes, guys. And I know you all love talking remakes because that's a fun topic, right? Uh, and then on episode 13, which will follow right after it, you're going to hear me talk with Denver comedian Will Elder as we break down Hitchcock's um, personal masterpiece, Vertigo. Um, this is a film that film fans love. They can't get enough of it, and we're going to dissect the hell out of it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so this is basically it. You're getting two episodes back-to-back -to, -back to conclude the Jimmy Stewart saga. Uh, but don't worry. Jimmy will be back on the show. He always pops up from time to time, even when he's not being discussed. He can't help but make himself heard. You know, titans of golden age Hollywood love to stick their nose into things that that just don't belong. Um, but uh, <laughs> or at least that's been my experience with them. Uh, anyway, uh, so thank you all again for your continued support of the Shamley Silhouette. Truly, this show does not happen without you guys giving me this encouragement, um, which is misplaced. Y'all should be fucking ashamed. Um, but I, regard, regardless of that, I thank you very much for indulging me in my love of Golden Age Hollywood, of uh, Alfred Hitchcock, um, of Suspenseful Tales. Uh, and uh, 
you know, uh, it really, uh, the, the support has been astounding, and I cannot thank you enough uh, for encouraging my creativity uh, throughout this, because this is amongst uh, the amongst the things that I have in my life for getting to discuss Alfred Hitchcock, getting to talk with the real nerds and doing, you know, on and off film work. But this has been one of the best joys of my life is sitting down and talking about this subject that I love so much. So thank you very much. Um, stay safe. Stay well. Um, I, I I have the optimistic hope that things will get better. Um, uh, if there's one thing I've learned that uh, from movies is, is that a happy ending is possible. Uh, I'm not going to blindly say that it'll happen tomorrow, but uh, I'm going to be very hopeful that something good will come soon. In the meantime, though, you're sitting at home, you got nothing to do, and you're thinking, well, maybe I want to hear a discussion about a Jimmy Stewart-Alfred Hitchcock joint before I sit down and watch it. Well, I present to you this week's episodes of The Shamley Silhouette. Good evening. Tonight's story is called The Babysitter. You know, I don't think taking care of a baby is any great chore at all, if you are properly prepared. I bring my comforts with me. A portable radio, a few books, a hot lunch, a cold drink, a heavy mallet, and if that fails, earplugs. Good heavens, I forgot the baby. Stay right where you are, I'll be back. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette, yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I'm your host, Zach Eastman. Uh, before we get to today's episode, I want to thank previous guest episode, Ryan Frost, uh, who came back to talk about some World War II era Hitchcock films. Uh, we had a lot of fun. We kicked some Nazi ass and uh, we managed to dive into the different facets that lead up to war and then how war concludes. Um, today's episode... We're going to be talking about two different eras of Hitchcock, two different elements of Hitchcock, but they're all the same. It's all connected, guys. If you know Hitchcock, if you are aware of these many classics that he does in the British Gamo period prior to coming to America, there are many films that you will see repeated on a list of top 10, top 50, top 100 Hitchcock films. There's not that many, guys. There's not 100. Um, but one that would pop up more often than not is 1934's The Man Knew Knew Too Much. There's also another film that would pop up on a top 10 or top 50 of Hitchcock's greatest films, and it's 1956's The Man Who Knew Too Much. As you can see, there are two Man Who Knew Too Muches. Um, and it's an interesting situation because it's a director who manages to remake his own property 
and make it in a way that is just as successful as the original and even purports debate over which one is better. Well, we at the Shamley Silhouette don't claim to be the experts in full knowledge, but we are here to declare winners. That's what we're going to do. We're going to declare winners um, uh, boldly and brashly and stupidly. We're going to do it. Um, but I can't do it alone because if I did, uh, it would be as boring as a YouTube rant video. So what we're going to do is I brought on a return guest and a new guest, but they're connected too. It's all connected. Hashtag that Marvel thing. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome back to the show, Aaron Pendergast. Thanks for having me back, Zach. And I want to welcome to the show, he is the host of Pop Culture Brews. And with Andrew, he was he is the host of the soon-to-be-coming podcast, Remake, Reboot, Review. Please welcome Andrew Saunders. Thanks for having me. Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome. I want to, <laughs> Andrew, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, from the moment this show began, you have supported it. <laughs> Liked every Instagram post. You know, I, I love this show. I love Hitchcock. There are some very bad Hitchcock podcasts out there, and this isn't one of them. Okay, thank you. There I'm you very glad to know that I'm not the bad one. I Actually, I have noticed that there are plenty of Hitchcock podcasts out there, and I've listened to a couple of them, and, and some, of them, some of them are good. Some of them are good, um, but, you know, you know. I mean, like, I, I can guarantee you that none of them have Hitchcock cursing. They don't have Jimmy Stewart talking about dirty things. <laughs> this is the one thing that we can try to provide. But um, and Sets you, us apart from the other Hitchcock really does, podcast. Yeah. Exactly. And so with Remake Reboot Review, you guys are going to be launching this show that is it a, is a fascinating idea. It's a wonderful way to approach film discussion and uh, dissection. Can you guys talk a little bit about that before we dive into our subject today? Um, yeah, essentially what we're doing is taking um, a movie that has been remade or rebooted um, from an original movie and comparing the original version against the remake reboot and talking about you know differences, similarities, uh, cultural impact on how the story is told, and um, ultimately which one's a better movie. Right on. And and sometimes they might both be bad movies. We don't know. We haven't got there yet, but it could happen. Yeah. And um, uh, with uh, pop culture brew, Andrew, I want mm -hmm. to tell you, like, so I'm not a drinker. I don't drink anymore. But I like listening to your show because you <laughs> managed to you're doing not only film analysis and breakdown prior to the concoction and just throughout the concoction, but you're just you're melding two different facets of culture together, the brew culture <laughs> And the pop culture. <laughs> so yeah. um, is that something that you've been kind of um, compelled to do? Like, did, how did you get started with that? Yeah. So, I mean, always been a film nerd, always been a pop culture nerd. And then six, seven years ago, I started homebrewing. And I just thought it'd be a great way to combine the two things to make a beer that was inspired by something I love. So, um, you know, a couple of examples is there's a beer I made for Ready Player One called a Jelly Donut mm -hmm. because I figure nuts like eating donuts. And one, <laughs> I like donuts. Um, Who doesn't? <laughs> precisely. Um, you know, one my co-host made, we did an episode on Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. So he made a, we called it an Obscurio, and it was a very dark stout. So mm -hmm. it's just something that we, we have a great time doing. And the, I'll tell you, the one that I just listened to, uh, you guys do a podcast clips now oh yeah and uh so at the time of this recording there will be more episodes with of that show obviously mm -hmm. but listen to the apocalypse now one this is as a fun where you guys talk about the 60s and 70s uh cultural landscape and then also 
fix in that brewery with it. Yeah, I mean, that was probably our most serious episode because yeah. when I had the idea, I was like, let's do Apocalypse Now because <laughs> I know the making of Apocalypse Now, which is a shit show. Yeah. Um, but then I'd forgotten how serious that movie actually is. Yeah. So my friend who had never seen it was like, oh, this was dark. Yeah, it's dark. It's, it's uh, I mean, it's literally based off of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Yeah. Uh, which is also the name of a documentary that Coppola's wife made of where you get to see Coppola go nuts. <laughs> it, and it's it's like, adorable to a certain extent because I'm just like, oh, the 70s. It's like Lost in La Mancha without the jokes. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Actually, I'll tell you, Lost in La Mancha makes me cry because it's not so much it's not so much like, oh, I didn't get to see that movie. It's just like, man, it looks like Terry's really trying. Yeah. Uh, now, Terry's been putting his foot in his mouth lately, but whatever, you know, like... We'll, we'll remember him how he was. <laughs> yes, exactly. I will remember him as the man who uh, made some very wonderful cartoons for a wonderful show that I've been rewatching. <laughs> so he wasn't the man who knew too much. No, it was not. He was the man <laughs> who... He's the man who thinks he can do too much. Yes. <laughs> um, but, I mean, if you do watch the... Uh, eventual version of Man Who Killed Don Quixote. He's, it, I'll tell you, it's it's a film that if it had been released in the 90s, it would have been perfect. Yeah. I think it is it is 20 years too late because it reminded me a lot of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and how it functions. Mm -hmm. um, so, but this isn't a Terry Gilliam podcast. Um, this isn't a Terry Jones podcast. No Terry's involved in the Shamley <laughs> silhouette. <laughs> um, we are here to talk about Hitchcock and we're here to talk about the man who knew too much. So um, before we fully dive, um, Aaron's already answered this question. Now we get to ask you the question. How do you get into Hitchcock, Andrew? Uh, I think similar to you. Uh, Ten years old at Universal, they had the Hitchcock exhibit. Mm. And so went to that, was blown away by it, <laughs> and then subsequently forgot about him for three years. <laughs> <laughs> And I was in, I was on holiday with my family in Turkey, and I was too young to enjoy any of the uh, after dark stuff. Like the the, I was too young for the kid discos and all that. So <laughs> I was in my room just going kind of flicking through channels and TCM, and I see the name Alfred Hitchcock, and the movie was North by Northwest. Ah, so you got you got hooked in on the Cary Grant element. Absolutely, right on. Now yeah. since then you've dived into Hitchcock a little bit further and mm -hmm. you know, you, you, you got the established questions. What would be your favorite Hitchcock film of all time? Would it still be North by Northwest? Yeah. It's either North by Northwest, um, or psycho. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's, let's go cliche, but, um, <laughs> if we're going eras out of the British era, it's 39 steps, which without that, you wouldn't have North by Northwest. Yeah. You don't have Robert Donat either. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Robert Donat performance there. I was actually watching clips of goodbye, Mr. Chips. And I was just like, man, he's, really good so good yes um so with that you brought up the british period um it's a section of hitchcock's career that we we haven't talked about as much as i'd like to on the show and that it's going to be changing as we wrap up the show we're going to be talking more about the british demo period and um one thing to recognize within that period is that there's a there's a lot of stuff hitchcock develops in britain that then is more or less perfected in america yeah um, if you look at the British Gamo period, the ideas are there that you see later on in his career, but they're rough. Uh, they're not quite as slick or efficient as they would later become. And the discussion we're going to have today is a clear example of that because you not only have the literally the same plots, but you also have similar visual techniques, 
literally the same shot composition in both films happens at least once or twice throughout both versions. Yeah. Um, so we'll go ahead and dive into The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1934. Um, the film directed by You Know Who, <laughs> um, written by Charles Bennett, D.B. Wyndham Lewis, um, with uh, Edwin Greenwood and A.R. Rawlson with the scenarios. Um, originally, The Man Who Knew Too Much was supposed to be a Bulldog Drummond movie. Uh, Bulldog Drummond, a kind of like amateurish 007, uh, that uh, he worked on this with Bennett. Uh, they couldn't get it to work with the Bulldog Drummond character, but they kept the framework and turned it into what we know as The Man Who Knew Too Much. Uh, and the title, The Man Who Knew Too Much, uh, is taken from a book of a series of short stories from G.K. Chesterton, which uh, he owned the rights to, but instead of using any of the stories, he just used the title of this book. <laughs> so it's an example of just taking the elements that work and just sticking them in there. Um, my, my most important question in all this, though, is who is the man who knew too much? The, well, at least someone who knows too much. Well, I mean... I know the one who knew too little was Bill Murray. <laughs> um, the man who wasn't there was Billy Bob Thornton. Mm -hmm. And um, and uh, the man was Samuel Jackson and Eugene Levy. Right, that's that's what I'm aware of. I know who, who the man is in certain respects. Um, Eugene Levy also brought down the house. So, <laughs> What a reference. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you. I, I... <laughs> Try watching Bringing Down the House now. <laughs> And you realize, wow, we laughed at some stupid and ignorant <laughs> shit. <laughs> I couldn't watch it then. No. So. <laughs> I was a kid. <laughs> um, but no, I, I would guess the man who knew too much would be Leslie Banks in 1934 and um, somebody who will make an appearance on this show in 1956. Um, he's not coming out yet. I'm not bringing him out yet. <laughs> it's too early. We yeah. haven't gotten too there yet. Yeah, too he, hasn't, he hasn't had his food yet. He hasn't had his coffee. He's, you know, he's waking up from the grave. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, it would be it would be the father character, and I and I guess to a less to an extent the mother character, even though she kind of just finds out later. Um, but well, actually, in the 1934 version, she gets a note beforehand about the child's disappearance. Yeah, so, true. Yeah, uh, it's kind difference. of a split. Yeah. yeah. So before we dive directly into 1934, one, it's important to talk about the basic plot of the man <laughs> who knew too much in general, because as this is a remake situation, the plots are the same. You know, it's it's not too dissimilar from Halloween versus Halloween. Like the plots are very similar. Uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween, not David Gordon Green's Halloween. Um, so uh, the, the basic structure is a family that is on vacation, gets wrapped up in an uh, international spy plot. Uh, their child is kidnapped because they are given information by a spy before he dies out of uh, assassin's bullet. Uh, they are trying in vain to search for their child, which leads them to stopping an assassination at the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, and then a final confrontation happens where they are reunited with their child. Um, so basic stuff, right? You know, you got, you've, you've got a plot that essentially could be utilized in any other Hitchcock movie too. any kind of spy movie could easily fit into this mold. Yeah. Um, what's interesting to note is that in between the two different versions, a lot is learned by Hitchcock that then gets applied to that 56 version that 
in theory, smooths out the rough edges of the 1934 version. Yeah. Um, but we can dive into 34 right now. At the top of the film, it's it's winter, not unlike what we're dealing with outside right now. <laughs> um, and uh, there's some downhill skiing going on. There's some skeet shooting going on. And uh, within that plot, uh, the man that they have uh, come to, the family has come to admire, Louis Bernard, uh, is assassinated in a ballroom and thus propels the plot forward. And right from the get-go, we're dealing with, you know, like quicker cuts. It's the British game up here. So it's like the film is shorter. It's about an hour and 16 minutes compared to a two-hour version down the line. Um, so already there's like, there's certain plot elements that are, it's not that they're discarded or lost. It's just that the writing is different compared to what would happen 20 years later. Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, you know, there's there's some interesting uh, devices they use in the original that are also used again in the 56 one, which is kind of a cool thing to see those techniques still kind of work. Right. Um, and we still mm -hmm. use them today. But, you know, it's interesting how they were how they kept a lot of those elements. Yeah. And um, at the top of the film, too, we also meet our our main villain, Abbott, played by one Peter Lorre. <laughs> Reek. Uh <laughs> I love Peter Laurie too much to make fun of him that way. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart, on the other hand, <laughs> he hasn't, he isn't here yet. Um, but no, we, we get the villain up front and, um, you know, there's a, there's a brief interaction with them, but he's not a primary focus at this point yet. Um, right now we're actually focused on, um, a, uh, a man who has become friendly with them as well, who ends up being the main instigator of the kidnapping. Uh, the, uh, the assassination of Louis Bernard happens in the ballroom. Uh, he is given information. Uh, the, the husband is given the information from the wife and then goes to the Louis Bernard's room and unscrews the cap of a shaving brush to find the instructions of where something is going to happen and when. Um, and then within that, they are interrogated by the police. Um, and, you know, there's a discussion that would come back later, which is, the discussion of like, can I, should I speak to the British count, the consul or consulate or anything like that? Just the diplomatic element of everything is like, who's responsible for what on what territory. <laughs> um, and what's interesting to note in this particular version, it's much like a 39 steps uh, or a lady vanishes. There's a lot of call to war in the film. There's a lot of call to action with regards with what's happening in Europe in the early thirties into which would then lead to world war two. Um, what's pretty fascinating is one of the best discussions that I saw in the film, uh, in terms of that direct illusion is why should we care about somebody who we don't know who's going to get assassinated? Like we care more about our kid and the, 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 the special investigator flatly points out like, well, I'm bet you never heard of Archduke, Archduke <laughs> Ferdinand. And I bet you haven't heard of this country, but somebody you never knew in a place you've never been to was assassinated and plunged us right into fucking war lady. <laughs> wow. Direct yeah. quote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's from the original outtakes. You know? <laughs> that's from the original outtakes. PG movies were different in the thirties. Very different. Or you, in, in a PG movie, you could show a bear getting a blowjob and it was an incredible experience. <laughs> um, 
I loved the British period. Why you did said I... you weren't going to talk about that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and where can I get a copy of this? I, 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 my bare blowjob movie <laughs> is only available in the private collection of Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, okay. I, there were six Hitchcock films from the legacy that I left to my family. Five of them have been re-released. <laughs> There's a reason why the sixth one hasn't, because it can't make any money today. <laughs> um, Those damn censors. <laughs> so sensitive now. There is that trailer where Jimmy Stewart is reintroducing those classics for the 80s, and I would just love to hear the burn. And the sixth Hitchcock film, you never know. Bear blowing. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so we're propelled into the plot. They get back to London. The family gets back to London. And... Um, the the father Bob Lawrence gets uh gets his uh the uncle Clive to help out in, in the investigation. It leads them to a sun worshiping cult. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that's usually what happens when your kid gets kidnapped. It ends at a sun worshiping cult. I mean, that's I don't a, know. I mean, I grew up in London. There's one on every corner. There's a, it's yeah, every yeah. everywhere. Every, everywhere there's like, a, and what's weird is it's a different sun. <laughs> yeah. So statistically speaking, your kid's gonna get abducted by one of them. Uh, you like, know, I mean, it, it happened to me. I grew up fine. <laughs> You weren't asked to assassinate any ambassadors, were you? <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> You're not my lawyer. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. All I can tell you is hail son. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, so the and it's and to point it out, like in the middle of their investigation, they do wind up at a dentist's office where somebody who is involved is, you know, basically running that particular operation, and uh, the father does gas him. Um, to try to figure out where to go, and that leads them to the sun worshiping cult. Um, and there we see Abbott again, and Abbott basically unloads the plot without, um, <laughs> with without really getting like it's it's weird because Peter Laurie in this film, it's a pretty astounding performance um, because one, it's his first English speaking performance. He learned all of his uh, dialogue phonetically, not unlike Bela Lugosi in Dracula. <laughs> Um, unlike Bela Lugosi and Dracula, I feel like Peter Lorre, even though he's learning it phonetically, understands English delivery better than Bela Lugosi did. Um, so we have him basically describing the plot. They uh, explain where the assassination is going to happen, how it's going to happen. Uh, he, uh, Ramon, the assassin, is told when to execute the ambassador by listening to a sample of the co of the music they're playing at the concert and he hits it needle needle drop on the precise moment when cymbals crash that's when he's to shoot him uh so we already have this knowledge up front the setting up this bomb under the table that someone's not going to know it but the audience is aware of it um we get to the confrontation at the albert music hall where the wife uh is aware of the plot but the ambassadors and everybody else is not so when this just before the symbols crash, she screams and it distracts everybody. <laughs> um, and uh, Abbott's under the impression that everything went fine as far as he knows. And he finds out it hasn't. Um, the father um, has been kidnapped at this point, is reunited with his daughter. They escape. Um, and then it leads to a big shootout at the end uh, between the police, the bad guys and one pissed off mama. <laughs> yeah. 
And that's the uh, the plant and payoff I was mentioning at the beginning was she's there uh, participating in the skeet shooting competition. Yeah. And the guy that she loses to ends up being the assassin. Yeah. And, um, you know, then they end up with the spoilers, everyone. Um, <laughs> she ends up shooting him on the roof. Right. Um, and it, it's a really nice, like, kind of callback to that moment yeah. Yeah. of, you know, her saying, like, oh, we, we should do battle again in the future or something like that. Like, they definitely, they tell you it's coming and then it happens. And it's really, like, I love seeing that in a movie that old to know that, oh, man, that that's when that was created and we still do that shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and the other thing I want to mention is that certainly for the British period and certainly movies of that time, to have the female character mm-hmm. take the killing shot is amazing because I have such issues with the ending of the remake, <laughs> um, which we, we which we will talk about. But hey, I, what will be will be. <laughs> but to to basically, I mean, because in in the movie, I wouldn't say she's a passive character in the. I mean, she is in the sense that she's nowhere in it as much as the male character. Mm-hmm. But whenever she's in a scene, she's propelling the scene. Yeah. Um, and so when she does pull out the gun and call back to the original shot, hey, <laughs> um, it really is like this really nice payoff. Yeah. And something unexpected for a 34 movie. Yeah. So yeah. like, so we've basically kind of gone through the plot of the, of the, of the original, but like to deep dive into the original, as, as you mentioned in, in the British period, and I think it would also extend to the American period, oh, like absolutely. having, the, having the, having the female uh, protagonist or, character in general be as active as she is let alone having that kill shot is unprecedented yeah and it feels to a certain extent it feels like britain could get away with this better than the u.s could (laughs) um because we we still have problems giving women things to do in films and it sucks um uh but so in this particular one and it's also it's bold imagery Mm -hmm. and the, the for all the visual roughness that the original does have because it is it's just coming off the silent period into the talking period you are relearning the process hitchcock big proponent of pure cinema where you don't use any dialogue if possible um has managed to still construct in these early talking films the right propelment of danger suspense and use of editing to create an action scene essentially mm-hmm. um arguably the albert hall sequence in this film even though it's pretty rough is still thrilling for its time i would argue in a weird way it's also tighter i mean it, it's yeah. rough but like it's the famous thing about the the remake spoilers coming up <laughs> is it goes on for like 10 minutes yeah it's far too long yeah. it's far too long but i mean the amazing thing is like not a word of dialogue is spoken yeah but it almost gets to the point of parody. Yeah. Um, because you're literally watching people have a conversation and it's like an old silent movie. And this one, like you don't really get that it's way more contained. I will I will when we get to it, I will point out where I appreciate it to an respect. But I do I do agree with you that it yeah. is extended. Oh, technically, it's yeah. fabulous. But... Ex- exactly. And it's like but it, it is a it is a longer situation. This one's more compact. You still get the same effect. Mm-hmm. You still have basically similar compos- shot composition, whether it's the gun coming through the curtain, her screaming, or just the the way that the theater is filmed, or yeah. the, the the Royal Albert Hall is filmed. Right. Um, but I but the the shootout at the end, um, like it, it's that I wanted to talk about it again there for a second because it is based on a real life incident. Yeah, uh, that took place in London's East End, um, in, in 1911, and there was um. Uh, it's a the Sydney Street Siege, 
So he's already doing this thing again that he's done before where he draws certain elements from real life and kind of melds them into a film. Like obviously the the biggest example is Psycho, where mm-hmm. you have a real life crime inspires a story that inspires the film, but the elements are still there of the real life story. Um, so he's still good at kind of taking real life elements and sticking them in there. He does this as early as the lodger in 1926 when he has basically a Jack the Ripper situation running around London. And it's not really about Jack the Ripper. It's about an Avenger and not Tony Stark. So, <laughs> um, but um, so there, and you know, but I will say that the beginning of the film with uh, in terms of the visual aesthetic and whatnot, even though it's pretty quick and there's certain elements that seem like they're removed like people's relations to characters are not always well established in early uh cinema in the 30s um in fact a a hitchcock example that will be talked about at a certain point in more detail is number 17 where virtually nobody's character is perfectly established in that (laughs) 64 minute movie uh so you're kind of left wondering how anybody knows who but if you if you remove yourself and you're just looking at the basic plot of man and wife, child, other man, spy man, <laughs> bad guy, if you're breaking it down to archetypes, you can follow a story like this pretty easily. Yeah. Um, there, The importance of the couple in this movie is not as important as it ends up becoming in the remake. The interesting thing to note is that like Leslie Banks and Ed Best I mean, at least to my mind, and if, feel free to disagree, but to my mind, they're not as fleshed out. They they are kind of they're active participants, but they don't have their their main motivation is their child, but their personalities are somewhat barren. The exception being the wife and her ski shooting. Yeah, but I know virtually nothing about Leslie Banks. As yeah, a I have no idea what he does. No, as, <laughs> as a, for a profession of, I mean. I, I even at the beginning when they're talking to um, the spy who eventually gives them the information, their interaction, I feel like it's somebody they know very well. I mean, the daughter calls him uncle. Yeah. And yeah. yet we then when he that. dies, they they he's like, oh, we barely knew the guy. And I'm like, well, you yeah, could have fooled me. Like, well, it's one of two uncles she got because the other one, Uncle Clive, is playing with the damn trains. In <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those wonderful things about a Hitchcock movie. Sometimes yeah. it's just small things going like, why is that important? <laughs> I guess it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's I mean, fun. Yeah, I mean, like, and, you know, like, I mean, obviously the MacGuffin's never important. Like, and and, yeah. and in the case of uh, here, it's it, the, the MacGuffin. It's the child. Yeah, it's the child. Like, <laughs> the child's not particularly important to the story, but, like, but she's propelling the plot. Like, yeah. okay, we've got to get her. Um, and to an extent, the motivation of the, of the villains mm-hmm. is we're told that they need to assassinate somebody. But it's not explained why the sun worshippers want this person assassinated. All we know is that they're sun worshippers and that they want this ambassador assassinated. Well, I think that's very kind of standard of the time because you basically every movie at that point, and it's an adventure story, you got your antagonist, your protagonist, Mm -hmm. the MacGuffin. Like those kind of character details weren't important. Yeah. And it's not until, I mean, you start stretching movies out to 90 minutes, two hours, that's when character really comes in. But right. a lot of his British stuff is like, going back to the 39 Steps, other than knowing that um, the Hannay character was in Africa, what do you know about the guy? No. I mean, we 
all we know is is that well, I mean, with Jimmy Stewart, we know that he's just on vacation. Yeah. With Louis Bernard, we don't need to know what his particular spy affiliation is. Yeah. All we know is is that he's come across important information and he needs to get it out there. Yeah. And and that's an essential Hitchcock technique of just strip it down to the bare essential. Mm-hmm. Okay, can I follow this without having to be bogged down by exposition? To call back North by Northwest, as I've we've discussed multiple times. The government secrets that James Mason <laughs> is after is not important. <laughs> like, right. that was a microfilm. Yeah, you don't mention this once. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he says literally outside the airport in that movie, government secrets. <laughs> anyway, Cary Grant, you've got to go save the day. <laughs> it's wonderful because it's just like it doesn't. I mean, it's one of the reasons why North by Northwest is amazing. Is because it, to an extent, Hitchcock is parodying himself. Yeah, it just doesn't matter anything in it. It's fun. Yeah, and um, but. You is know, that microfilm the same one that uh, Nicolas Cage finds in the leg of the pew and <laughs> in the rock? Right? Is that which is a secret James Bond movie, right? Because of Sean Connery being a secret agent. Yep. Yeah. So I, I'm just, you know, it could be the same microfilm. Maybe you, you that's connected to the rock. Yeah. It, it, welcome to the rock. <laughs> um, so, so we basically have like a rough around the edges film, but it, but it, it's innovative for its time, mm-hmm. um, and it. It manages to, uh, it, it manages to do a couple of things. It, it further establishes Hitchcock, it establishes Peter Lorre, <laughs> and gets him over to America at a certain point, and then Peter Lorre ends up becoming. I mean, like I'm not sure what you guys think of him today, but I think he might be one of the most underrated actors of the golden age of Hollywood, or at least under discussed, mm-hmm. because I think when we think of him, we think of him as. Um, uh, amongst other things, uh, Joel Cairo from Maltese Falcon, um, uh, Ugati from Casablanca, where he's kind of playing the slimy characters and whatnot. But if there's a if there's a is there's a movie that I can recommend you watch that's not M, but you should watch M because M's amazing. Why haven't you watched M yet? Um, there's a movie called Passage to Marseille where Peter Lorre is given, I think, one of the more brilliant and under discussed performances he ever gives because he's not playing a rat or a coward or a sneaky guy he's just a guy who's you know he's he's a falsely imprisoned guy who's trying to you know he's basically trying to avenge his honor in a certain extent and he dies at the end but you never get the sense Jeez, that thanks zach yeah i was yeah. gonna say no i don't need to see it no dude, dude watch it <laughs> watch it is there a remake no <laughs> <laughs> hopefully no. someone reboots it fun fact it was originally designed to be a sequel to casablanca oh yeah and then and then that idea was thankfully discarded <laughs> <laughs> um but the man who knew too much um it it opened up and every the reviews are positive the reviews are still positive to this day um hitchcock continues his career in britain um he makes sabotage where he uh mistakenly kills a kid with the bomb theory <laughs> and uh, gets gets very pissed off about it he has it out for kids in yeah. this period. <laughs> he really does he really like, does children <laughs> <laughs> see i like i mean just a totally sidestep i like that they killed the kid in the movie when they did it was yeah. such a kind of like oh it, my god you know it's funny it's a, it's a debate that i that i have in my head constantly because like he he feels that from an audience from a mass audience perspective he fails because he kills the kid and therefore the the effectiveness of the bomb theory is not really seen to its full potential because the hero doesn't come out on top or mm-hmm. in this case the child is not saved but if you watch it today like it it, it adds further stakes yeah. to his the sister character and 
propels that climax in the theater much more significantly than it would if he had survived. Yeah. Or if like, if he, I mean, if he was wounded, I guess that that's the middle ground that you could lie on, but it's still the, when you watch that sequence of that kid on that trolley train, <laughs> it's, it's, it's tense. It's tense. It's impactful. And, and much like man who knew too much compact yeah. and it's tight. And it's concise and it works. Um, can I can I go back to something you just said though, which I think is really true of this movie? You yeah. refer to it as creepy, yeah. And the British one is so much creepier than the remake, yeah. I mean that shot of the the dentist teeth, and then going into the dentist, and the dentist is gassing him, like that is a remarkably tense exactly scene, yeah. yeah. And, and it's really like the way it's lit and shot, it feels very like dark and scary like it doesn't you know the underbelly is more prominent mm -hmm. yeah, yeah yeah for sure and like and actually like i mean I, sometimes i attribute this to the british sense of humor versus american sense of humor and i think that it it's been applicable to many situations over the course of this podcast let alone hitchcock's career with with the original version and what we'll end up discussing here in a second the the, the tone of this film uh one is creepy and two is a lot more macabre. Like Absolutely. It, it has a much more, it is much more willing to go to darker places, um, not just thematically and story-wise, but also in the visuals as we've been discussing. Um, like the fact that it's a sun-worshipping cult, like I'm not like, I mean, I know that we're like harping on it, but the reality is, is that like, it, it's, it's kind of a horror film in a certain way. Like, I mean, I feel like in this one, you feel that maybe that's why he did what he did to the kid in Sabotage. You actually feel like the daughter is in danger. Yeah, in this movie, the like, stakes yeah. are real in this yeah. film. Yeah, and, for sure. Um, and and also like there's hypnotism in this movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Uncle Clive character <laughs> is hypnotized by the uh, person who's leading the congregation of the sun worshiping cult. I'd forgotten about that. She pulls out a little coin. Is like, watch the light. <laughs> to which, to what, to which I'm like. I want more hypnotism in a Hitchcock movie. That sounds yeah. fucking fascinating. <laughs> like, I will say Uncle Clive to me was a detraction from the original version. Mm -hmm. I thought he was just kind of like this unnecessary sidekick that was yeah. almost played for laughs a lot of the time. Like yeah. he's the one who gets hypnotized. He's the one who gets a tooth pulled. Like it's always like, you know, he's kind of getting kicked around. Mm -hmm. he, um, he's, well, he's, oh, sorry. Oh no, you no, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, and he's made to be kind of like a child with like his big train set. As yeah. Well. Like there's right. a childlike quality to him probably to show that like the dad is the man and the hero. But yeah, I, see exactly what he's saying yeah and it's and it's a it's a situation in the early british period it seems like he utilizes sidekicks a lot more because they are they're, they're a reliant they're a reliant archetype back in the early era film yeah. period but um you know he the, the the hobo in number 17 is very much that kind of character he is a comedic relief character even though he's technically essential to the plot um but the lady vanishes has I think the the sophistication <laughs> of it with Charters and Caldecott. Oh yeah, because they for all their for all their selfishness with their football match, they they are you know they are essential to the proceedings of the plot, yeah. and Clive is only essential to the point where he is assisting Leslie Banks. Yeah, but he's right. not. Yeah, you're right. He's not really contributing much other than a train set gag yeah right. um so i mean and yeah. maybe when we talk about how dark the movie is like he's there to lighten it up a little bit mm -hmm. and make it right. a little less intense because you've got somebody who's kind of you know playing the humor of it a bit yeah because yeah. i mean at the end of the day when it's all said and done regardless of like which version is darker and whatnot 
it's still a dark subject matter. Your child's been taken. Yeah. <laughs> Leslie M. Neeson when you need him. <laughs> oh, God. Like, I mean, Leslie Banks couldn't do it, but we'll talk about how, like, at the whole time I was rewatching the remake, I, I was just like, man, Jimmy Stewart and Taken. What does that look like? <laughs> I mean, I tattoos, you might see. <laughs> um, so, but this film is a success. There's a break. Obviously, he makes a bunch of classics. <laughs> um, some failures to make in, like, um, but he. Uh, uh, we get to, around to 1955. The Trouble with Harry comes out. It's not a big hit. Not a big hit. The, among amongst, it's a classic. And uh, if you've listened to episode eight, you'll know that I'm a fan of it. And I think Trouble with Harry is one of those films that he's allowed to step outside of his mold, and so it doesn't really hit. He owes a film to Paramount. And the, the 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 quandary in his mind is like, well, I got to give him something that's a hit, I'm sure. So what about that other film I made back in the day? <laughs> um, and if you watch the behind-the-scenes documentary um, or featurette on The Man Who Knew Too Much Blu-ray slash DVD, um, Pat Hitchcock narrates it. And essentially, uh, there's a discussion where he talks to Herb Coleman, his associate producer that he starts working with in the 50s of like, what would you think of remaking the man who knew too much? And Herb Coleman replied that he had not seen it. So he had Herb watch it and Herb Coleman uh, gave the best response in the world, which is like, man, it seems like you and film grew up together, Hitch. And apparently Hitchcock took that as offensive. <laughs> and I'm just imagining the greatest temper tantrum imaginable from Hitchcock. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> you got, Herb, I love you, but fuck you. <laughs> so in the midst of this, though, he decides, like, well, I, I want to – it's it's an artist deciding to ultimately remake his own work. And, like, the, the what Herb Coleman suggests is not wrong, is that what he's able to do with The Man Who Knew Too Much remake is to apply what he's learned in the interim into this remake. Um, and in the process, you you he establishes a cast of characters that I think are, are are memorable, in spite of you know whether the preference of this film over another film will you know be determined by the end of this episode. But James Stewart is brought into the fold here. That's where I come in. Um, and then Doris Day, the the recently uh, uh, passed Doris Day, is in this film, and probably one of her most iconic film roles. If we're going to talk about what we remember of her today. This and Calamity Jane. <laughs> yep, Calamity. <laughs> I like Calamity Jane. Um, and it's funny because like, I've had the discussion about Doris Day. And, and her her role in this in particular is interesting because when we think of Doris Day, I think there's an impression in our heads of sweet girl next door. Like, not really pushing any boundaries or whatever. She's playing a mom whose child's been kidnapped in this movie. <laughs> and I and, and she's fed pills to calm her down. I think she's giving a really good performance in this movie, <laughs> uh, for the most part. I mean, now we'll get to whether or not she's as essential as, mm -hmm. say, the wife in uh, the original. But um, so we're left here. Hitchcock goes and remakes his own work, extends it to two hours, and uh, we are given the man who knew too much from 1956. Um, the screenplay at this point is done by John Michael Hayes, and Hayes is explicitly told to not watch the original film or read the original script. All that was given to him was that Hitch sat him down and told him the story of Man Who Knew Too Much. Now, 
there's a little tidbit in Disney history that re- applies to this. The way Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was pitched was Walt Disney, in his chain-smoking goodness, gathered everybody in the Disney lot into one of the conference rooms and basically acted out the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs for the crew to tell them, basically, this is what we're going to do. Um, which, at the time, is probably sounds like the ramblings of an insane man because an animated feature had not been done before. Um, now, Hitchcock, as limited as he is in movement, I can't imagine would have been as emphatic as Walt Disney pitching Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I'm pretty sure it's no different than looking at Masterpiece Theater introductions, sitting in a robe, <laughs> and pitching the story to John Michael Hayes. <laughs> And there's um, this sun cult, you see, so I really want that. Yeah. But, but, look, I like the sun cult. <laughs> and I'm not trying to guilt trip you here, but if you don't put it in, it's whatever, man. It's cool. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> but maybe we don't have to be explicit. You, you, John, you can do whatever you want to do. You Wink. Wink. <laughs> because that's what it feels like when you watch this result. There's so much carried over. Yeah, it's yeah, it uh, it falls in line on yes, yeah, so many different beats. Um, really, the you know, there's a couple things that are are different, but serve a similar purpose. Um, him going to the taxidermist instead of the dentist office, mm-hmm. and it's the wrong fucking place. It has nothing to do with what they're doing, <laughs> right? Um, you know that like that's kind of a kind of a funny allusion to the other one, but um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, like. It's the same movie. Yeah. yeah. And this movie is chock full of comedy. Um, chock full of comedy. A lot of comedy. We'll, we'll start off right off the bat. And so instead of the wintry Alps, <laughs> we are brought to Morocco. <laughs> uh, off on the road. Bing and Bob are in the corner. <laughs> and they are on a bus traveling. And um, the, the it's not a little girl at this point now. It's a little boy <laughs> named Henry. And um, uh, the uh, the kid is annoying. <laughs> Thank you. He's not precocious <laughs> like the girl in the original. He's kind of a little bastard. He is very presumptuous. And like, I guess it should be brought up at this point that this version is very Americanized. Yes. It's by comparison. And obviously that comes with hiring the screenwriter that you have who comes from America and is applying his sensibilities to basically like, I know we joked about it, but Hitch just gives him the outline mm-hmm. and says like, okay, these are the keys. Now apply them to the locks which you which you choose to form, and then the door will open. But you know, he, there's a lot of American sensibility put into this, and also just American terminology in order to introduce the '50s audience into this scenario. Because the British version, as successful as it is, when you watch it, it it it's very clear that like this comes from Britain. This is, from a British point of view, you're dealing with the prelude to war. In this one, you're dealing with the post-war world. Um, So, you know, it's explained that Jimmy Stewart's character helped liberate Africa. Uh, That's right, I fought fucking Nazis. (laughs) I was in Africa, I was in Italy. There was one time where I was dropped into France dressed as a civilian, and I did one thing and one thing only. (laughs) Killed Nazis. (laughs) Um no, but uh, Jimmy Stewart is um, uh, he he's basically you know post war soldier now mm-hmm. full time doctor has married a famous singer in Joe Conway played by Doris Day, and they're on the bus. They meet Louis Reynard through a 
situation involving disrespecting the Muslim religion, which, I mean, it's it's funny. It's not like it's it's weird to talk about it now, like from the content. Like back in the day, like it the 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 Muslim culture is not as discussed as it is today. But like, it's very very clear and cut and respectful in this film. Like it's not. It is because the the way the kid gets in trouble is that they're on a bus and he's being a little shit walking up and down the aisle. <laughs> And um, he bumps into a Muslim couple and accidentally takes away the the wife's the veil fa- the yeah. veil yeah um, which very important certainly in, in where they are um, where, is it Morocco yeah it's a, it's uh, yeah it's Morocco yeah so very traditional this would be seen as a very like big insult I'm sorry Marrakesh Marrakesh, Marrakesh. So, yeah, and right. it's you know it it is an innocent mistake but they don't. Whereas other movies of the time, or even movies now, would have demonized yeah. that couple. It's just like, oh, he shouldn't have done that. Really sorry. Yeah. Uh, this is what happened. Yeah. It's and, all good. I mean, like, there is the comment of, like, they're not as forgiving or whatever. Like, it, or it's just like, it, they, they take it very seriously. Mm-hmm. And, like, now, granted, the whole discussion of the veil and, you know, how that relates to today is not is not really discussed in this film. Like, no. Because it's not a real focus of the film. It's... It's it's a weird part of earlier films where lands outside the U.S. are treated with uh, fear and suspicion to a certain extent, but it's also a matter of just like don't don't fuck with the the local people. Yeah, right. Um, and uh, part of that I think has a lot to do with the fact that th- this is filmed in Morocco and Marrakesh, mm-hmm. and they had to submit the script um, to the uh, offices where filming is permitted in in morocco and among the only real big problems was trying to figure out how they would not interfere with the with ramadan, this, uh, ramadan yes yeah. so so i mean with within that respect like it's 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 oddly uh 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 timeless and it's in its approach to it because yeah. it doesn't really it's not trying to offend anything or like treat it like there are films before this and after this that are very disrespectful of lands outside of America yeah. that are not Europe or uh, even Australia. <laughs> so, well, right. and, and the whole thing is just there to get these two characters to interact. Yeah. So as soon as it happens and it's treated as this, this is a fact of life here, yeah. it's never mentioned again. Yeah, and it's also to establish like Jimmy Stewart's, I think, secret wish in this film, which is, man, I wish this kid would go away. (laughs) (laughs) I was watching this movie with my wife and like, you know, the kid's just there. She's like, and why are they trying to get him back? You know, he's naturally curious, which is fine, but it's like, it's, it's very fifties American kid. G golly whiz. Hey mom, remember <laughs> when, hey, hey, hey mom, remember when dad lost a bunch of money in Las Vegas? And right. Yeah. That's one of my favorite gags where he just so, goes, Hey, yeah. stop short of saying you little fucker. <laughs> where do I get you home? <laughs> like, so, uh, but they meet Louis Bernard on the bus. Right. Um, they, uh, are invited. They, they invite Louis Bernard to have drinks in the apartment. Um, and, uh, they're going to have dinner with him, but that dinner plan is canceled. Um, at this point, uh, the thing- little annoying shit is being put to bed to the song Sarah," <laughs> 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 Which uh, becomes, I will say, like, for for the problems that we'll have with the ending of this particular version, that song is very, very well used in the movie. It yes. is very yeah. well used. And it's a good True. song, too. Yeah. No, and, is, and that's the plant for the payoff later, which is a little bit weak compared to the 
you know, whole skeet shooting thing in the first one, but we'll get to it. Yeah. And it's, um, this, the, the song in particular, I, it, it falls part and parcel with the studio's attempts to try to put popular songs or something commercial within the films in order to like sell a record and help further promote it and whatnot. And then Hitchcock has run into this before with trouble with Harry. It was one of the first insistences. And that's why you get the song flagging the train to Tuscaloosa in that film. (laughs) Um, It's a good song. It's It's just, it's, it's it's so weird. I I prefer John Forsythe's version over the one that they released as an LP. Um, And you can only hear John Forsythe's version in the movie. And he's just whistling and singing it like with, with no instruments in the back. This one in particular, though, this is an instance where there is an iconic song in a Hitchcock movie. Like, you, you cannot deny that Que Sera Sera is something that extends beyond the movie. Like, it, it, is, it, is, uh, it has a legacy of its own. Um, and Doris Day singing it is particularly important. It becomes the, one of those, I think it's probably one of two big songs that is associated with her that we remembered the moment she passed last year. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, like the what's interesting with that is we were talking about the first one and not having really establishing what anyone does for a living and no character development. And for her, you find out she was a former uh, singer or performer of some kind. So it fits that she world famous. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I mean, world famous Joe Conway. (laughs) Yeah. And that kind of I mean, it does plug into obviously the the wife in the first movies there competing in the shooting competition. Mm -hmm. So we know that she does that. But I, it was just interesting, like in that within that character development, they took another aspect of her character and applied that to how they're going to do the twist in this movie. Right, and and when we get to the end, we'll discuss how that kind of underservices her. <laughs> I, I just love like fifties um, mentality of he's a doctor, albeit a successful doctor, because throughout the movie he's like, oh my jacket was so and so's gallbladder, and I'm like, you're a sick man, Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> I'm not even going to try the impression. Mine's nowhere near as good last, as yours. Lesson, lesson. Um, <laughs> but you know she's this like world famous performer and she's like well I'm a doctor so you gotta stop now yeah it's very very 1950s of them <laughs> which okay like, but we'll get to this like we'll, we'll speed along through this Louis Bernard is uh, well and actually actually we should back up they go to dinner without Louis Bernard and they meet the well, British he stands couple. them up. Yeah, he stands them up because yeah. he's um, because the assassin that we see later in the movie knocks on the door and recognizes him. Yeah, creepy so, bastard. Oh god, he's. I will say for, for all that Peter Laurie is as creepy in the original, this guy may take the cake in terms yeah. of like Peter Laurie. He's like he's yeah, playfully he's playfully creepy. He's he's a, he's like a cupid doll of creepy. <laughs> like, you know, like I don't necessarily not want to have a tea party with him, but <laughs> so. But like, I mean, this guy is like clearly the way he's cast. It's it's very much established that uh, his um, uh, this this guy is it's a stock character that you see in spy films later on, where he is very much uh, he's got the the look and whatnot. I think it kind of hits its peak with um, the guy who plays Jaws in the James Bond movies, <laughs> which like I'm not I've I've never seen the Roger Moore films, but I've seen clips of that guy. So I, I know I'm I'm very bad. With my James my Bond. jaw just hit the floor. You know, it's fine. if you look on my shelf, you'll see I have the complete collection because <laughs> I got it for very cheap, and I have yet to sit down and watch all of these. We we, we are planning a James Bond episode. Yeah. Oh God. Oh my God. Maybe get me on there. I'll be the one outsider in the room. Like, well, here's how I see this spy bullshit. Um, <laughs> um, but so, yeah, no, so they, he stood up. So they go to the restaurant on their own and uh, there's, 
and again, another thing of respecting the culture of where they are at. You know, when Jimmy Stewart's trying to eat the food wrong, he is rightly corrected. Yeah. <laughs> like, and he throws a fucking fist, hissy fit <laughs> when he can't eat the chicken with both hands. Yeah. <coughs> um, but it was but, very interesting, like, at that time to see a movie kind of address, like, oh, here are some cultural differences that you should respect yeah. because you're here. Like, that and makes fun very of cool. him for not being right. able to do it as opposed to being like, look at these funny people. Right. Yeah. Look, like, look at these funny foreigners and the weird way they eat. Like, yeah, they no, didn't approach it that way. It if, was more like. If anything, it's like, look how ridiculous James Stewart is not respecting a yeah, culture. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and what I, I think part of it has to do, we are in a post-world, uh, in post-war era. Um there's a lot of, unlike today, there's a lot of push for international cooperation. And <laughs> that's the only time I'll get political on this show. I'm sorry. Um, but he, um, but there, is a, there is an attempt to bridge gaps between cultures at this time. Not every film is successful at it, obviously. This one in particular seems to be very, very aware of its surroundings. Yeah. Um, and also of like... You know the, the 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 bottom line is, is at this time also we're dealing with the, the the Cold War era and just the attempt to reach out to nations. It's it's the goodwill ambassadorship of film mm-hmm. that is not completely virtuous. Um, but like these are things that like Walt Disney and Orson Welles worked on during the war to bridge gaps in South America. It's not exactly the same here, but there is an attempt to explore the world beyond the confines of a suburban household. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I like putting it in the context of, you know, uh, contrary to the original where it's like a, a ski competition in the Swiss Alps and it's very, like, you know, uh, safe because it's another European yeah. country. Like, right. this is something vastly different from that. And it also puts them in, I think, a less comfortable position than, like, say, if if I were traveling to England or Ireland or something and had an issue, I would not feel too worried about interacting with someone and explaining mm-hmm. the situation. Whereas in this case, they're in a very different country, different culture, different language. And it makes it that much harder when the inciting incident happens to like feel comfortable or like, you know what to do or who to talk to. And yeah. Well, and the, the interesting thing about this movie is a lesser movie would have had the menace come from within that strange mm, culture. Yeah. He's still keeping it European. They still go to England. Yeah. Spoiler. <laughs> um, Wait, where, what? What? <laughs> well, ironically, they, they can't interact with, with the local police or anything. And right. So, I mean, it, it was really kind of bold choices for, for a movie in the 50s. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And, and And it still manages to, like... I mean, spoiler alert, that there's no sun cult specifically in this movie. Damn it! There's a cult. I know. I told John, <laughs> if he wanted to do it, it's his own business. If he doesn't want to do it, that's fine. And I guess he just didn't get my fucking hint. <laughs> I wanted to appease the sun gods. And now I can't. So now when I get to the 70s, I'm going to be a failure. <laughs> because I didn't appease the Aww. sun gods a second time. <laughs> Damn it, Alma. Um, no, so um, so yeah, they they, they have dinner uh, and they meet the British couple who will later become our uh, uh, remake versions of the kidnappers. Um, and their discussion is uh, comes from them recognizing Joe Conway. Um, we cut to the next day; they're in the marketplace together. Louis Bernard is being chased down the street in a sequence that, you know, the original version is you know it's a tighter compact film so stuff happens in a much more crime noirish way 
Man Who Knew Too Much remake is treated much like an action movie mm-hmm, to right. a lot of respect. Yeah, definitely. And this scene in particular, this chase scene down the streets of Marrakesh, you know, for any problems we have with with the story content of this remake, the sequ- the action sequences in this film are wonderful. Um, when when they are done accordingly, and this particular is a wonderful chase scene, you know, like I mean, it's it's very standard film identification and analysis, but like we're able to identify him because he slips in blue paint, you know, mm-hmm. and it, and it doesn't feel unnatural. Like it feels like he is like this is somebody he bumps into, and that's how we are able to identify one over the other. Where the police chase the wrong one, he's able to find Jimmy Stewart and give him the information in a whisper. Um, He's only stabbed once in the back, though. I mean, (laughs) it seems like that wouldn't be enough to kill him right away. But this is the 50s, so, like, you could literally just, like, poke somebody in the eye and they'd die. So, (laughs) um, I think, actually, like, Jimmy Stewart's westerns are the most violent because they have more than one gunshot. But so he's given the information, and the British couple takes the kid back to the hotel. Or well, the mom, do, well, the the wife says she's going to. Yeah. Spoiler alert: she doesn't. And they go to the police, where they are interrogated. And unlike the original version, this one is extended out pretty far, mm-hmm. and deals with the uh, international mess that can happen when stuff happens abroad. And Jimmy Stewart proudly proclaims, "I'm just a tourist here in your country." <laughs> <laughs> so further establishing that Jimmy Stewart is c- culturally inconsiderate. <laughs> um, but I, I will say too, like I, what I, what I really appreciate about this is the, in the original, the daughter's taken, but we don't really, um, you know, we find it after the fact, but there's no, like, there's no reason we would suspect that before it happens in this you know they they send their kid back with the other woman the uh the man that was with her leaves he came to the police station to be a translator but they don't need one so then he leaves and that's when you first start to think i wonder if these people are who they yeah. claim to be like yeah. it's very suspicious the timing of the call and him taking off and i think that um uh it's really adds a nice element of kind of cluing the audience into some things. So you're mm-hmm. trying to figure out the, the plot ahead of time as well. And it has more of that to your point about the action thing. It's almost more of like a spy thriller kind of yeah. set up this time. Yeah. Um, and it's actually what I, what, I mean, within that, like the breadcrumbs in here are laid out much better than they are in the earlier film. Well, I mean, the earlier one is like, uh, your daughter's been kidnapped. Go. <laughs> whereas this one is much more your son's been kidnapped wait what my son's been kidnapped yeah your son's been ki-. like there's actually a discussion yeah there's yeah. A, it's a sit down with yeah them. like they're they're expanding like john michael hayes's script is able to expand on a situation that is relegated to maybe like five six minutes in the first one yeah yeah definitely. because then it has to get to its own version of the action mm-hmm. sequences um and Specifically, it's like, well, I mean, in the original version, the mother's handed a note yep. that says that the child will die, and then they get a phone call where then they hear the daughter's voice. In this version, uh, Jimmy Stewart gets um, called from by the assassin, the creepy guy that we talked about before, and uh, in in a line that's still very much quoted anytime you see her Hitchcock retro- retrospective, like, if you whisper anything of what Louis Bernard told you to the police. Yeah. 
your son will be in dra- serious danger. <laughs> and Jim was like, well, we're going home. <laughs> well, Bye. so long, kid. <laughs> it was nice. No, they were, And there was a discussion prior to that. Doris Day asks Jimmy Stewart, quite frankly, when are we going to have another baby? Yeah. I also and, find their relationship interesting because it's very much like, like – to you know looking at it through today's lens very dysfunctional like as a couple like they seem to they have moments where they're really good together and then other moments where you're like this seems problematic well, the <laughs> scene that follows is yeah. just like i mean on one hand i think for that era was probably unfortunately quite real yeah but watching it through 2020 lens or even 2000s lens, 1990s lens, 1980s lens, 1980s <laughs> lens, you are just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Want some drugs, ma'am? Because, <laughs> and she has already. Do, do you mind if I describe the scene? Go ahead. Go ahead. OK, yeah. so the the they get back to the hotel. Jimmy Stewart just got the phone call saying you say anything. The kid dies. Temptation crosses his face. And <laughs> and so he's like, hey, Midge, I, not Midge, it's not Midge, is it? It's no, Joe. Joe. It's Joe, Joe yeah. No, he's Midge Ben, he's ben is, McKenna. Um, she's Joe McKenna. There's vertigo. Hey, Joe, um, I'm going to give you something to calm you down. And in the most disturbing line was, you told me I was taking too many of those things. So it's like, you've got a drug problem. Have some drugs. <laughs> yeah. I'm a doctor and a man. <laughs> and he drugs his wife to like tell her our son's been kidnapped. But I will say, best performance of the movie, um, yeah. because she still gets hysterical. Yeah, she and... gets she gets hysterical. But she and it and I don't know if it's because because she's had the drug. If she's you know starting to get woozy and like that's that's affecting that could theoretically affect the character itself. But she's just she's also processing it. Yeah, she she has the time and the uh, and Hitchcock allows it within the scene for her to focus on. Okay, my son's been kidnapped. How? 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 Like she gets to work it out. Yeah, in her head while still be as you said, getting hysterical. Like she mm-hmm. is given an opportunity, and you're right. It is the best performance. It is. In I mean, the movie. she gives the best performance of the anyone in the cast, yeah. including Jimmy. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I mean, that scene, as much as we make fun of, like the kid and everything, it is a heartbreaking scene because what mother or parent wouldn't react like that? Exactly. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. It, it's one of those like as problematic as it is, it does help, you know, move things forward in a way. Yeah. Where you know she. You know, she processes it, but then, like, sleeps it off so he can get everything packed so they can get out of mm-hmm. um, Marrakesh and back to London. Right. Um, so it serves its purpose. But, yeah, very, very problematic. Like, we, when my wife and I were watching it, I was like, he's fucking roofing, roofing her, isn't he? <laughs> like, those are roofies. What's going on? The this isn't okay. The playing Mother's Little Helper. It's oh, a whole thing. Oh, God. <laughs> luck, luck. I know I told you once that you took too many drugs, but then I realized that I'm really good at enabling people. So have some more drugs. <laughs> why do you want another kid? Our son put you on them in the first place. Wait, wait. You know what? That's why he's giving her the pill now. It's not It's not like, oh, you said you wanted to have more children. I'm just going to have to slowly poison you. <laughs> if, if this is what comes out 
the first time. <laughs> I don't want a repeat broadcast. <laughs> don't care what gender, it'll be just as annoying. Because <laughs> yeah. it's a 1950s kid. I think I just don't want to be married or have children. Can I just be single again? <laughs> That's honestly, yeah, like them bickering at dinner a couple of times over dumb stuff and like so much like, I don't know, just their their tension is very um, feels like that, you know, classic like 1950s, like nobody gets divorced. So you stay married even though you're miserable. Yeah. And it, I got that vibe from them uh, multiple times throughout yeah. the film. I mean, I don't think they're like completely on the ropes. Like, I don't think they're going to marriage story territory just yet. But no, no but no, but it's definitely a every day a I wake up. I wish you were dead. <laughs> And like what I find interesting for the amount that they mention it, like being a dysfunctional couple, the amount that they mention she was this world famous performer, at no point does she seem to have any regrets about giving it up. Yeah. That's true. Not really. Like, I mean, if there's even if there's even remotely a hint of it, it's washed away by the plot. Yeah. Like it's like the disc like I think there's like there may be one moment where I feel like maybe she like has a regret, but it's more just like Louis Bernard doesn't know who she is, even though yeah. he's supposed to be from France. So she's kind of just so her ego is tested a little bit. Yeah. But it's also a matter of suspicion. So like anytime her ego is alluded to, it's only in service to the plot. It's not yeah. to her as a character. So, yeah, you're right. It's it's she doesn't there's no regrets established. Uh, but as much as it gets brought up and I know it's getting brought up as part of the plot. But it's just every other scene. Well, she's a world famous singer, but a doctor's wife. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's but 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 she's a woman. <laughs> like, yeah, yes, she she's got great vocal cords, but yeah. woman. <laughs> like you know, like and it's and it sucks because it's it lends further credence to the discussion we've been having about Hitchcock's female characters, which is for for any progress that is made there's also digression in several other areas um, i see i found this so problematic because this movie came after like to catch a thief um the um rear window yeah um even trouble with harry where all of the women are very headstrong and very um like they really propel the plot they're active they have agency they're really active and doris day other than singing and the hysterical scene is given nothing to do yeah i think that i think the only exception that could be made for that might be the fact that she figures out the where the chapel is yeah but that also just kind of that doesn't come out of really her knowledge point that comes out of we should point out when they get back to London, you know, they get the call from the kid and, you know, the the police can do nothing to help. Unlike the police in the original film, these police just don't want to have anything yeah. to do with anything. Um, they, they're just kind of like, well, I guess that's just what it is. <laughs> guess your kid's dead now. Yeah. <laughs> Cup of tea. So, so sorry, mate. <laughs> not to do. Your wife a, did want to make another one. Not, not to do a cheap impression of British policemen. Like, Blimey, I guess I guess your kids buggered off into heaven now. Um, <laughs> it, here's some biscuits and so long. But you know, like. <laughs> but so, the, but they go back to the apartment, and all of Joe Conway's friends yeah. are there to greet her. And props to this party of people—they are extremely patient. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, they're just getting drunk. Yeah, they're just oh yeah, they're they're, they're drinking up all the liquor in their house. They don't care on on Jimmy Stewart's tab. Yeah, exactly. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's my fucking pose. Joe, you're going to have to go back on tour. Listen, if I'm going to, if I've got to take care of this little brat, I want to be as wasted as possible. (laughs) It's the only way that numbs the pain. I will Um, say that the, the scene that follows when he, after he leaves the apartment to go to what they think is the location with the, um, that's the taxidermist instead of the church, which is a great um, sequence. Yeah, <laughs> that him going down that alleyway to get to it is like they do a great job building tension in that. Oh, yeah. And that scene in that shot is just that was one of those couple of there were a couple of moments in that movie where I was like, damn, that is really good filmmaking. And that yeah. was one of those spots where it just it just worked. And it's funny because the taxidermist ultimately is not really a threatening place it literally is a throwaway joke yeah, yeah it's, but it's a red it's a red herring and it's just like a moment it's it, i would consider it filler if it weren't for the fact that it's still moving the plot along somehow mm-hmm. because it's cross-cut with her realizing it it's it's not a place it's a it's not a person it's a place right and then her friend is able to you know tell her like well the chapel directory is over there or like yeah. like where to find that information but Andrew, is, do they have like just chapel directories around England? Is that a thing? I've got three right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I will say this: like in obviously in England and, and London, there's a lot of just random old abbeys and churches. Like the 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 where my grandparents live, the famous thing about Norwich was there used to be a church for every Sunday of the year and a pub for every day of the year. So we just have like a lot of old buildings lying around, which is not on. I mean, we've got those in America to an extent, mostly on the East Coast. Like we're yeah. just like you know, stuff is adjacent to each other within mm-hmm. the cities and whatnot. But yeah, it seems yeah. like we're tearing those down more often now than not, <laughs> which is really unfortunate. We yeah, don't... no, exactly. It's as if though we sh- maybe should try to maintain some of those buildings and whatnot. It's but... how you get history. Yeah, you know exactly. <laughs> just... yeah. In order, in order to have history, one must keep the building up, <laughs> not down. Um, but so they uh, they find out it's the chapel. They um, we, we see the kid, and he's being held by the captors and whatnot. Um, you know, the, the, the distinguishment, again, between the original and the remake. In the original, she's kept in much more grimy circumstances. I mean, you are with Peter Lorre most of the mm-hmm. time. Like, that's grimy in and of itself. But uh, in this one, the kid's just playing checkers and seemingly being way more well-behaved than he's ever been in his life. <laughs> <laughs> and I know he's been kidnapped, so he's scared. So that's not that that's not a joke. He's on not scared enough, though. No. Yeah, he's, he's, he's very, far too comfortable. Yeah, even on the phone call, he's just kind of like, I'm scared, mommy, but it, I don't. I'm I running don't. at checkers. Yeah, <laughs> you don't play much, do you? Like, and and you know, she he's playing with another captor, and then mm-hmm. the wife is, the wife of Mister Mrs. Drayton is, I think, much more conflicted about what she's doing than her husband. Well, and and she there's other than the mother in the original, there's no maternal character. Yeah, and I really like that they made one of the kidnappers maternal yeah because she's not they're not kidnapping the kid for anything other than we need to get this done this is a means to an end yeah it's, it's not we're gonna hurt him or anything like that whereas in the original way more menace yeah it's yeah, much more definitely. of it it's much more an insurance policy yeah. this time around like even mr drayton up to a point seems like he just wants the situation to just go through so that the kid can get let go yeah um but they find the chapel they go in and they uh 
hum along to a prayer. The dreariest bloody music you can ever hear. Let me let me ask you. <laughs> let me ask you. And I think this is uh, intercontinental. Doesn't matter. When you all went to church, was it all that depressing? Because when I went to church, it seemed <laughs> much more. It seemed much more lively in their uh, in their chanting or slash uh, you know spiritual songs. This. Uh, these guys, they may not be part of a sun cult, but they're a part of a cult. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I've been to church like five times my entire life, so I don't really <laughs> oh, remember. Oh, lucky you. <laughs> all, all I can say is the Church of England isn't known for its liveliness. Well, we, there's no there's no uh, guitar solos. <laughs> no, I mean, you always get some guy at the front with an acoustic guitar like, hey, call me Dave. But... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, we're not. They're, they're not known for like. All right, this is gonna be a rocking good time. Yeah, there's there's, <laughs> there's no uh, there's no clapping your hands up in the no. air like that, you know. Uh, only on special occasions. Okay, right yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> Today we are going to be happy <laughs> in a, in a rare change of events. <laughs> not not so low. Um, no, they do the the service and. Um, uh, Mr. Drayton recognizes him and just says, like, well, I think we should all go home and reflect on what we should be grateful for. <laughs> Which, if every church did that, I probably would have enjoyed church more because I'd be like, right on, we get a half day. Yeah. <laughs> and every woman in the audience is like, but I don't want to go home. Yeah. I mean, this is, excuse me. Hi, Pastor Drayton. Hi. This is this is where I go for spiritual comfort. Like, I mean, like, no, you've got to go. You've got to go. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, It's not your fault. It's that I've got two very iconic movie stars in the back room there. They need to be addressed. And a kidnapped child. It's yeah. a whole thing. Yeah. Keep up! <laughs> <laughs> we don't want them anymore. Um, so uh, they... Uh, Doris Day sneaks out with the rest so of the she crowd. She sneaks out she to does. kill the cops. Yeah, yeah. and um, Jimmy Stewart's uh, knocked out <laughs> right in front of the... In, in in a in a in a visual callback that the only thing I can uh, recognize it to these days is either the end of there will be blood or red state where people are just knocked in front of pulpits. Um, but um, I, I did prefer the chair throwing scene in the original. That was fun, yeah, yeah. entertaining. This one's a lot more quiet. Like it's not. It's. It, I mean, because within that we're also getting the same information about the record, the needlepoint drop yeah. on the record and whatnot. But um, the this particular version, it's a little bit more drawn out, a little bit more. Well, what's interesting is in the original, Leslie Banks is much more within the realms of the film, much more of an action man, as you say, throwing chairs, really trying to. But outside of running towards a guy, Jimmy Stewart isn't that much of an action man. He he just looks confused as like, and probably as anyone really would. He just looks confused throughout the entire movie. He's more active in Rear Window, and he is, by the nature (laughs) of that plot, inactive. Well, I think they, they do a good job of setting that up, right? Because they say he was a soldier stationed in Africa during yeah. the war, but he was in a medical hospital. So yeah. he wasn't fighting. He wasn't. So he's never really been I mean, he really is like action. the everyman. He is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's why like, you literally get. Literally in this movie. That's right. why you get me. You want you, you want somebody you don't believe? Get Carrie. You want somebody <laughs> you can fucking believe? You get me. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, and then... Uh, she calls the police again, and uh, she right. says, well, I mean, our main inspector is going to a concert. So, <laughs> you know, Iron Maiden only comes around here once a month, so. <laughs> well, um, it's a Tuesday, lady. We, <laughs> we stop early on Tuesdays. <laughs> I, I, oh, you don't know how London police works. Yeah, the, every Tuesday um, we uh, we break out at two. In Britain, we do the purge every Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> 
I do like that they um because they know British she was purged. <laughs> it's very polite. There's a lot of queuing. Hi, excuse me. I'm going to kill you now. Punk. <laughs> oh, if you couldn't. Oh, terribly sorry for the bother. If if, if we had... sorry, this man was in front of you. Could you let him go first, please? <laughs> Ironically, there's less crime on purge night. We're so polite. <laughs> if there is any violence, it's uh, much in a Monty Python vein. People get slapped in the heads with fishes. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um, I mean, that's supposed to be Finland, but they like to adapt cultures. You know, they're they're very accepting. British purge. Make that Blumhouse, please. (laughs) Please, please. We need this. Um, But anyway, you were saying I was. Well, no, I was just going to. I liked that, um, you know, she leaves to call the police. And in in this in the remake, they vacate the church. So they show up and there's nobody there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Was it really? I I thought that was a cool touch because then it just makes it seem like she's crazy and they're not going to listen to her later. And it Mm -hmm. bolsters the organization that they are a part of. It's like maybe it's it's like a something that is more of a shadowy kind of outfit. Yeah. Whereas in the original, it's much more of a I guess you would equate it to a terrorist organization to a certain extent where it's like it's it's a little bit more ragtag and like these criminals are from the underbelly of the uh, of of London's criminal world or Europe's criminal world and then this one it's it's much more uh uh, sophisticated and elaborate. Well, and I think because right. the original is much more about like the foreign threat. Like yeah. it's not a mistake. Peter Laurie's German, whereas no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> whereas in this one, it's much more that geopolitical. The world has en- uh, the world has changed because of the war. No one wants another war, so it's a lot more political. Because in those scenes, it's revealed that the vice president of another country just wants to ascend to the premiership. Right. right. So there, and the, it, and as, as you're pointing out, like it's, it doesn't define anything in terms of a political scope yeah. of the era of the time. And it's not, it, it's, 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 it's oddly aligned with the, with the notion of like, if you were going to allude it to something of that era, I guess it could be kind of like cold war politics where international intrigue is occurring, mm-hmm. but it is, it is, uh, by design, brought in order to not specific, in order to not create a bunch of more, a bunch more exposition and confusion, mm-hmm. um, and and there is a there's a point to it where like it's it adds to the element of like this goes all the way to the top because like in the in the original version as you said like you know it's a, it's a foreign threat coming in to Europe to mm-hmm. invade. And in this one, it's more just like, well, like, you know, we're in a post-war world, but things are still happening. They're just happening at these top levels now. So it's it it is fascinating to think about, like, how that how the sociopolitical aspects of the man who knew too much change over time. In 20 years. Yeah, because of the necessity of it and just like how much happened between 34 and 56 in the world. Yeah. yeah. Like it's it's. It, you, we talk about it a lot, but a lot of shit. <laughs> like a ton of shit. We got in the midst of two wars within the span of twenty-two years. Like, <laughs> um, so, but anyway, they the, the church is cleared out. They don't believe her. They go, "You're drunk, lady." And it's, it's just crazy like, lady, yank. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> oh, you Americans. <laughs> um, but uh, they, she, she recognizes that it's Albert Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they need to go to, and she goes there. Jimmy Stewart gets there as well, and we get to the sequence we were discussing, the Albert Hall sequence in the original, very tight, very compact. This one drawn out, and I agree to the point of a bit of self-parody. Yeah. Uh, I will say though, on the technical levels we were discussing, it is so efficient because it is playing into the pure cinema perfectly. Like yeah. it is a it is a genuine 
we all we need sound wise is the minimum, which is the music, because that's what's happening in the scene. That's what's propelling. Yeah. Right. And yeah. It, it feels like they're trying to build tension, but they, they just drag it out too long. It well, really could have. It, it reads to me like, because, you know, going back to the guy's earlier comment, you grew up with cinema. And then Hitchcock would always say the original was made by an amateur. This was made by a professional. Yeah. This to me was showing off. This is what I can do now. Look at yeah. all my camera angles. Look at all my editing. And look at my shit. <laughs> look, look, look at my shit. But it, it, it reads to me as someone who's kind of almost in love with what they can do. Yeah. And, you know, everyone's guilty of it. Once you get to that place, you sometimes don't stop to think, well, should I do it? And like cut back a little bit. And I think that this is kind of like a very obtuse moment of Hitchcock. And that's also yeah. a very good promotion for the prequels to Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Which we'll be covering. <laughs> it could also be the good promotion for if we get an Avatar sequel, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, sir, you didn't stop. You, you, you're so worried about what you could do, you didn't stop to think if you should. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> you're just giving us ideas for episodes because yeah, we're, we're writing them down I'll, right I'll now. talk to Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom any time of the day. I, I have I have thoughts on that film. Um but so yeah, the Royal Howard Hall sequence happens still still technically efficient, works as a silent film in its own right, and um Doris Day screams, the bullet uh only wounds the assassin just to graces flesh wound. the ambassador, yeah. Yeah, graces it. <laughs> Slides by him. <laughs> uh, Jimmy Stewart confronts the uh would be assassin and knocks him off the bal well I guess he runs on onto the balcony edge and falls. Yeah. yeah. Um, See, Jimmy Stewart doesn't even do anything. Yeah. He's like, hey. I mean, he oh. wrestles him for oh, half a oh second. Oh, my. <laughs> Guy drops the gun. Yeah. He runs the other true. way. That is true. That is yeah. true. He gets a little bit of action in, but he's just like, ah, shoving is a solution. <laughs> 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 so they get uh, they get thanked by the ambassador. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and then um, they reconvene with the police who are just like, okay, now we're ready to help. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but this is here's a problem. <laughs> They're inside... A diplom, uh, an embassy office, so we can't barge in. Which I appreciate in this film that the embassy situation is a little bit more clarified. Yeah, because in the original, it's very skirted over because the final action doesn't take place at an at an embassy office. It takes place mm -hmm. outside in the streets with a badass mama. <laughs> so you know, but like if you're going to make that element more prevalent, it's clear that John Michael Hayes was more intent on making a political intrigue thriller mixed into this uh into this every man trying to save his son's story. So like he elaborates more than is probably necessary, but it doesn't like it doesn't necessarily hinder the overall film that you're watching. No, right. And um, especially since he's, you know, as we've established Jimmy Stewart's not a man of action in this movie, you need a more um, you know, like I guess subtle conclusion to it for them, you know, getting into this embassy and finding their kid versus mm -hmm. the, you know, storming the uh, storming the embassy. Yeah, storming the embassy <laughs> with with guns blazing and all that. So oh. technically, the British police are allowed to do. It's a weird law in Britain that they can actually enter an embassy, but to do so would cause a huge political fallout. So, <laughs> in that case, you get Nicholas Angel, Danny Butterman, yeah, and they 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 leave Sanford. And then just invade an embassy. 
if there if I ever wanted a sequel to Hot Fuzz now, this is it. That's the one. <laughs> so the, what we have to establish is how they get into the embassy is once again Joe being the world famous singer. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, hey, come and sing for us. And they play it a twofold because they're also just like, Hey, you know the lady that saved your life? <laughs> yeah. Well, she wants to see it today because she's leaving tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna try this bluff. Let's see if it fucking works. Yeah. yeah. Um and then uh but yeah, they they get in that way and uh <laughs> It's not even subtle how the the like they're kind of like well maybe you would favor us with uh, and then Jimmy just Jimmy just blabs out my wife would love to sing 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 you canary (laughs) you know that song dance for me (laughs) dance monkey (laughs) um I love the idea of Jimmy Stewart knowing what Dance Monkey is as a song. (laughs) But um no so yeah she sings and she sings K Sarah Sarah. Um, knowing that her annoying son will <laughs> echo it because <laughs> he's a freaking parrot. <laughs> well, and, and the best thing about his performance in case Sarah Sarah is because obviously he's trying to build tension. It just keeps going and going yeah, until I, literally you see the audience be like, are you still singing? Yeah. I, I was wondering, I was like, is this song this long? I don't remember <laughs> it being this long. It's it's the high quality cinema equivalent of when the penguin is uh, twisting his umbrella in front of Christopher Walken <laughs> in Batman Returns. Was that supposed to hypnotize me? Nah, it's just supposed to give you a sweating headache. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, but, but within that, they track the he Stewart Stu, tracks the kid down within the house by hearing the you know whistling of the mockingbird there, mm-hmm. and um, the mother the Mrs. Drayton is absolutely having second thoughts because uh, it, it was mentioned earlier, but the vice president, in a speech that is worthy of going like you blundering fools <laughs> how dare you fail um uh basically says like well i didn't want you to kidnap the kid you know that americans hate their kids being kidnapped <laughs> liam neeson certainly hated it you haven't and seen he's it irish <laughs> he's irish he's not even american <laughs> um but now he's just like well now you have to get rid of him yeah and she's feeling obviously not uh wonderful about that mr drayton's kind of just like so he it's like he feels so embarrassed that he doesn't give a shit who lives and dies anymore (laughs) he's just like no i've been i've been made a fool of (laughs) (laughs) Um, but Stuart sees the kid and gets him and is about to leave but then drayton you know finds him and then uh with through kesarasara and everything that happens as they ascend down the stairs mr drayton is uh, is defeated Mm -hmm. the kid is recovered and the ending of this film, this final shot. Let's before we mention it, the original film ends with this badass shootout mm-hmm. with the, with a mother protecting her child by shooting down. Crack the shot, one shot takes out Peter Lorre. Yep, exactly. Um, you know, and fare thee well, Bogey. And then you know the the movie ends where, where it's a happy ending. And in this film, bad guys defeated. And the last shot of this movie is a joke. It's, um, uh, it's Jimmy Stewart and uh, J- uh, and G- Doris Day coming in with their kid to the party that has been waiting ever so patiently, <laughs> and ever so drunkenly. Like she's on verse seventeen. And, yeah, and going. <laughs> Sorry, we were late. But up, but but up, but. The end in this division. We did it. <laughs> um. So yeah. So yeah. In talking about the comparisons to the ending, like. Aaron brought up a good point. Like for the story that they're telling in this remake, the subtlety is probably required for the for the embassy situation. Yeah, but it lacks the 
pizzazz, I guess you would call it, of the uh, of the original, where it becomes much more thrilling. And this yeah. one, it's there's suspense, like, and it's well drawn out suspense in that embassy sequence. But it also robs us of the chance of Doris Day taking a shotgun and just <laughs> blasting a motherfucker away. Well, it's like they reverse it, and I was just having this realization as we discuss it. It's like the original begins as an espionage movie and turns into an action film, whereas this begins as an action film and ends as an espionage movie. That's right. true. It flips it, yeah. and it, it's a weird come down. Mm. Right, for yeah. sure. Because the momentum seems to kind of just It just tapers, tapers. off. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. No, and I think, um, you know, when you look at, like, the original, the ending is, is very much, oh, here's, you know, the husband, which actually I really like that the the uh, father character gets shot like, yeah. while the, the bad guy's going after the daughter. And you don't know, like, you know, he at first you're like, oh, man, he hold, he just shot him. And then, <laughs> and then he's grabbing his arm. And so you're like, oh, he just got him in the arm. You know, yeah. it's, I guess he's fine. Yeah. But um, the fact that they're all three, like, in the stairwell and the police are in there and then it just kind of ends there. Yeah. I feel like a lot of those, you know, movies from that time period really just kind of ended they like do. that. Yeah. And this, I think was the fifties one, how it ended was more in the time of like, you had to have some kind of like wrap up, some kind of concluding moment. Mm -hmm. um, but it is an unfortunate I'm decision sure to, to yeah. go back to the joke. Like there's, <laughs> there's their party waiting this whole time. No, it's, it's, I, I mean, it, it Another thing I thought of for the period within the context of this is like in the 30s in Britain and I guess and also in America, I guess, too. But like there was the rules of cinema are still being formed at this point. Oh, yeah. So a situation where the Edna Best character can be the hero in that situation is a little bit more, uh, I guess, you would use the term allowed mm -hmm. or at least like it, it's 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 more likely to happen like you could go in any direction. By the time we reach the 50s, amongst the things that happen in a post-war world is that the, the nuclear family is established. And yeah. in America, you you know, like there's 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 the line of domesticity that um, is unfortunately stuck into Doris Day's character. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not that Doris Day is not a badass in this movie, because there are moments where she is. Like tiny moments, whether it's just like her actively, you know, pursuing the church situation, um, and and that scene in the bedroom where she is, you know, allowed to weep. But she and and even in that moment, she never just she never fully feels like a just a qu crying mom over her child. She just no. she is genuinely angry because she's the one who suspected stuff before Stuart ever did. Yeah, like she's been curious the entire time, so it's like justifying her fears. Mm -hmm. But she's never allowed to be the full proactiveness, and I wonder if part of that is a is a consequence of the 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 gender structure that uh, that really solidifies in the fifties in this country, especially yeah. um, where there's there's a lot of like wife here, husband here. Well, I mean, it was the prime time of the sitcoms of like Leave It to Beaver. You had uh, Father Knows Best, um, all of those shows where. You know, dad comes home from work and dinner's on the table and so scotch she's in hand, scotch yeah. in hand. And so, I mean, Doris Day is kind of this crystallization on screen of that. Right. And it's and it's important to discuss that Doris Day as an actress in the 50s and 60s, there are two identities to her. Um, one that is known and one that is not really discussed. The, the one that is known is Sweet Girl Next Door. Ideal 50s girl, you know, like 
like knows her place but can still go toe to toe. She did play this with a twinkle in her eye though. Like yeah. when she's talking about having kids, like that there's there's knowing that. Yeah, exactly. And there's like and there's the other side of Doris Day that is not discussed, which you just mentioned. You know, we we tend to forget a lot of comedies that Doris Day's was in back in the day were sex comedies. <laughs> the movies she made with Rock Hudson are sex comedies. No. They are not like obviously it's not the level of Seth Rogen cocking vagina, but <laughs> you know, like they're they're there. And on top of that, you know, like especially with something like The Man Who Knew Too Much, she doesn't just fit into that mold. However, I think whether intentionally or unintentionally through screenwriting or just character tropes she still finds herself in the realm of subserviency mm-hmm. in a way that even Grace Kelly doesn't get stuck into. Yeah. Like, Grace Kelly in To Catch a Thief, uh, especially Rear Window, and Dial In for Murder, she's 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 nobody's prisoner, really. No. Like, I mean, like that, she may fall into tropes, but she doesn't ultimately succumb to them that much. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and, Well, and I was going to say, to contrast with the original, like, you have the father character is stuck with the kidnappers for the you know last half of the movie so yeah. the, at that point the mom's doing everything else she's getting the <laughs> yeah, police she's exactly. stopping the she's assassination like, oh, shit. Okay. she's like damn it leslie the yeah. one person that's like continuing things forward otherwise he's just stuck in the, in yeah. the house of the kidnappers you know so. yeah whereas this one they're both around yeah they're, well, like no. she seems more active and it's funny because they the sidekick in that you feel like oh this is like he's more important than the wife character but then she steps up in it and then in in you know the with um, James Stewart and Doris Day, they're like, you know, she's more involved in the plot, but almost less essential to it. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, one thing I was going to say with like the, the, the weird Americanness of, of the remake and, and the original is we in, in the UK, you didn't have the Hayes code. Yeah. So the Hayes code actually restricted, in my opinion, like a lot of great dramas and, and social roles. So, Whereas British cinema and European cinema is allowed to carry that. Yeah. So by the time you get to the 50s and, and 60s, the one thing that struck me was, while in black and white, this is very dark, very grimy, how bright yeah. this movie is. And everything in post-war American cinema in this era, even like the dark dramas, are very bright. Technicolor, Vista Vision. Yeah. Whereas in the UK, we had our kitchen sink dramas where everyone's just miserable yeah um and when something is bright it's because it's a comedy it's fun yeah and so i just think that's an interesting difference actually it's 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 interesting to know because we you know early on in this show we did psycho we discussed psycho for a while but michael powell's peeping tom comes up uh i believe the same year as psycho in britain it's 10 times much more intense (laughs) and violent and like and i and i and i uh, correct me if i'm wrong on this because i'm i'm not supremely familiar with it but i know that there is a there was a a lot of uh scrutiny on horror films uh in the uk and in europe and there's a lot more of a different attitude towards it there as opposed to was was here there's more of an attitude towards violence yeah as Um, opposed to sexuality and mm -hmm, stuff or even gender roles and Mm -hmm. um and you're right this this the hayes code restricts a lot in the era the hayes code ends up turning into the production code um, which then gets turned into the MPAA um, mm-hmm. under Jack Valenti and um, his bullshit rate of terror. But um, he, uh, I do not like Valenti, but he, um, but those, those different codes are based primarily around American values, church values, and um, uh, 
decency groups. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to just say it's all church groups. Like there are just like moral decency groups or like it's, I mean, we, the, the most modern day example we've had of it was when people were bitching about South Park being on the air and corrupting <laughs> children. Right. I think like, if, if we're talking about the, the extremes like yeah. that and the Simpsons, like when, when parents were getting obnoxiously pissed over right. nothing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Send this, your TV off, people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do it before Saddam Hussein comes up with his boyfriend Satan. Like, <laughs> hey, guys. Um, but you know, like you're, and what's funny is that the Hayes Code, like, it doesn't necessarily restrict the imports coming out of Britain into the into America. Yeah. So it's they, I, they're they're running under different certifications. Like certain things can get cut. It, I mean, it did impact it, which is why it was a sun cult. Yeah. At, at the beginning. <laughs> but like you know, you didn't have necessarily, and you know, going to speak very generally. You know, the the Hayes Code really reinforces that American nuclear family, father knows best, yeah, wife at home. In the UK, I mean, certainly as a result of World War Two, I mean, women were going to work. Women yeah. were, and not in the fun 50s, 60s feminism, but more as to survive, I have to go and get a job. Yeah, and, this is not Mad Men scenario. Yeah, this is... and so it, it probably may have struck more realistic that the woman did take that sense of agency. Yeah, and it's like, oh, okay, she's she's a kick-ass shot. This is amazing. Yeah, and it and it and it exemplifies the difference between like you know, Britain's recovering literally from the rubble. Yeah, whereas yeah. we we were relatively untouched by World War Two. Outside of Pearl Harbor and I guess to an extent um, Midway, mm-hmm. but you know, like there's uh, there's a there's a part of Doris Day's character that feels like like even though she gets to be active in the slightest sense, like it's because it's barely there, but like the majority of her is like maintaining the image of the caring mother mm-hmm. and leaving the main propelment of action to Jimmy Stewart. So it, it's weird. Like the remake flips a lot of different things, not always for the better. Yeah. Yeah, um, for sure. So, you know, this uh, version is released. Um, it comes out, it's made for 1.2 million and then ends up making 11.3 million. So clearly the audience of 1956 didn't care about what we fucking think. <laughs> this movie made fucking I can't bang. imagine why not. <laughs> My opinions were very valid back then. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> when I was just a sperm, I had as I, I my opinion mattered just as much as Brosley, Bosley Crowther's. You you guys are like <laughs> speaking of Brosley Crowther, my my favorite slash nemesis uh, critic of the era. Um, he said of the uh, of the new film. Uh, James Stewart tops his job in Rear Window as the man who knows too much. And Doris Day is surprisingly effective as the mother who is frantic about her child. Even in Mammoth This Division, the old Hitchcock thriller stuff has punch. He's not wrong. This movie has punch. I don't know if it has pie with the punch, but it's got punch. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, But Variety was a little more astute, and I think they were a little bit more on our side here. Variety said... Uh, Hitchcock draws the footage out a bit long at 119 minutes, but he still keeps the suspense working at mm-hmm. all times. So, I mean, we were we were talking a little bit on the way here, Aaron and I, that these movies, I feel like these movies should work way better than I feel like they do. Mm-hmm. Um, they they seem 
I don't know. They they seem to miss something, and I don't know if you can explain it better than I can. But there, there's something off about both of them. Yeah, yeah, and I I'm not I'm not sure what it is either. It's just it's like they they both almost did it, but not quite. Yeah, yeah, both. Well, and I think like part of it might go back to our discussion regarding like Hitchcock tell tr- told Truffaut like what the w- first one you saw is an amateur, the the other one is by a master. Mm-hmm. So. I think what it is is that like this story in order to do it perfectly you need to embrace both two parts of each one to make it a whole and we'll jump into it with the discussion of like I think it's clear which version we'd prefer <laughs> which is the 1934 version because mm-hmm. of its more adherence to an atmosphere and an actual vibe of terror whereas the the remake, while slick and efficient, even by modern standards, is lacking in depth that yeah. it needs to possess. But my thought in going back and forth with these films has always been that if you were able to allow that remake to be creepy the way the original is, that remake would be a masterpiece. You it it needed to, and and also trim it down by about fifteen minutes. <laughs> um, I don't think there's any reason for this film to be two hours, really, because of just how much time we spend on nonsense. Yeah. But if you were able to allow an underbelly to exist in that remake, I don't know if it would solve all the problems, but it would certainly be embracing the concept better. And I think part of the issue is is that. When Hitchcock's telling the screenwriter, don't watch the original version, don't read the original script, he's only going off of what his knowledge is of this genre and this outline. Mm-hmm. So it's always, it's, it is coming directly from his experience as an American screenwriter living with American knowledge of how the world works. Yeah. Whereas the Charles Burnett version is aware of a world in, on the brink of war. Mm-hmm. And you have that circumstance tied into it. Um, and the other part of it is is that I think that it does the, the the remake lacks humor that is essential and replaces it with humor that is bullshit. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's and and keep in mind you're talking to a guy who will listen to like old time radio comedy shows till the ends of the earth. But even I acknowledge that, like, sometimes that doesn't always work for films. Like, I mean, certain comedy and films of that era, especially in the 50s, mm-hmm. is very corny and unnecessary. Like, I mean, you, it, it depends on the project that you're working on. Like, if you're, if you're giving me a screwball comedy with a Cary Grant or a, or a Hepburn or a Lombard, those can work. This, the, the humor that they pull off in this movie, in this remake is for another movie entirely. Yeah. Um, so but I want to hear what you guys, like your preferences and why for the remake uh, versus the original. So, I mean, I will go with the original um, because the mother was a badass. The ending <laughs> makes so much more sense yeah. than having Doris Day. And it's a lovely song. But won an Oscar, by the way. Won for an this, Oscar. Yeah. But the, the issue I have with it is... It felt like a very lazy, anticlimactic ending. Yeah. Um, now I think if you, uh, to your point, made the remake a little creepier and given Doris Day the same kind of 
benefits as the mother in the original while still allowing her to have the breakdown scene absolutely because then you're seeing a woman who is like crushed but you know liam neeson in it um but yeah i prefer and plus it's it's 75 minutes so i can handle that yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah and actually that brings up a question that i have uh uh well i guess aaron first like what would be your preference uh i would say probably the original as well there there are aspects of the remake that i like more than the original but i think overall it is a it's a tighter movie um the original has some messy editing, but I mean that's probably more a product of the time than mm-hmm. anything. Yeah, that that um, that is strictly just the era yeah. at work and learning learning the craft because right. it's Alma and Hitch basically editing with their main editor and mm-hmm. like she's a top notch editor, but they're learning from silent to sound. So. Right, and I think that um, you know when you, you take into those in those considerations, it's definitely something. Um, I think there's things the remake does very well. Again, that alleyway scene going to the the taxidermist is oh, it's fantastic, gr- just brilliantly shot. Um, the uh, the Albert Hall scene, uh, the scale of it just feels so much more grandiose in the mm-hmm. remake, which probably has something to do with color and the fact that I watched it on my new TV, so it was bigger. <laughs> than hey, the... in in this division too, in this division, yeah. new TV, Aaron. Yeah, <laughs> but um, would you get an 8K? That's <laughs> impossible. It's 20K. 20K. Oh it's wow. From Japan. <laughs> it's from Japan. 20K is where you just step inside the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Are you Jimmy Stewart? Um, but uh, oh anyway. no. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I do think um, just from you know having a. Uh, when we, you know, in, when you know, we were in film school together, we talked about how you you want to tell the story in the amount of time you need to tell the story. So you take out a lot of those extra things you don't really need. And that's where I think the remake adds a lot of stuff for the sake of what you were saying earlier, where he was now that he's been doing this for a while, he wants to show you what he can do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you didn't need it to tell the story effectively. Right. So, yeah, I think that's kind of where it, it fails. And I wonder... Uh, the question I was going to ask is that because we have Doris Day in this role, to my mind, it wonders like if Grace Kelly had been given this role, do you she think it would have been a shotgun? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's not, and I, and I don't think that's like a, a a downer on Doris Day and whatnot. But I think there is like just based off of the script that's being concocted. Mm-hmm. But if but Hitchcock is much more aligned and in tuned with working with Grace Kelly and giving her things to do. So it does suggest that she would get that shotgun easily, more yeah, easily. By I, comparison. I don't know that I would buy it though with Grace Kelly because, <laughs> well, no. And here's my thing: Doris Day is like the girl next door, like the epitome of the girl next door. Yeah. Grace Kelly is Grace Kelly. Like Grace <laughs> Kelly, no one ever lived next door to Grace Kelly. There was never a girl next door. So you're you're taking this movie, which is, I would argue, the epitome of his every man movie yeah this is the ultimate jimmy stewart is you yeah to have grace kelly there it it would just ring very false yeah so i agree i i I agree i mean (laughs) i because then i would be like wait i wouldn't marry you you're too perfect (laughs) and we'd be back to me in that fucking wheelchair (laughs) (laughs) and and don't get me wrong like doris day is beautiful and wonderful yeah it's a very different approach yeah that would have been taken i i had i had a thought of who could have been cast in the role that gives her the shotgun and it's a it's an it's an off-kilter one but um vera miles Mm. i think vera miles would have had more 
there would have been if you're if we're going off of the stereotypical casting of an era that we frankly still fall into today where people are placed according to what their most knowledgeable success is vera miles's association with hitchcock is fascinating because she was put through roles that were challenging mm -hmm. um the wrong man in particular but also i mean psycho you know she's active in psycho she's yeah. extremely active she makes John Gavin look like a stick of wood <laughs> or a plank of wood that just stands there and does nothing. Yep, the shoe fits. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, Gavin's fine, but I know he's not. He, he's, he's there. Mm -hmm. There's a better Sam Loomis in cinema <laughs> history, and that one's a drunken British doctor that shoots a gun. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, but Vera Miles, I think, would have been able to. Like, if, if you had put her in that role and she's the mother, I think she can possess the maternal quality that would be of a Doris Day, but also would be able to wield that gun and not be afraid to take yeah. down the villain. So I think that that would, that would be my primary pick if we were going to replace her. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, and the only other one that I could probably think of would, you know, I guess Ingrid Bergman, but I also remember that Ingrid Bergman's a situation where like her motif is not the same as Miles, where like her motif is a little bit more like she's, alluring but also in danger yeah so there's like she's got agency but it's it's almost very much in the hitchcock female mold of woman in trouble so um so that basically wraps up the man who knew too much a remake situation that <laughs> what's weird is is that for all the faults that we talked about in that 56 version it's still watchable oh it's yeah yeah, yeah. It's um, definitely an enjoyable film and it's a situation where a director was able to tackle his own work again and there's not too many examples of that. I think the mo one of the more famous recent ones would be Michael Haneke with Funny Games, mm -hmm. where he was able to take his original, more grimier version, and, and he still makes a grimy one out of the one with Naomi Watts and Sean Penn, but he clearly is able to do different things with it than he did before. Um, and we have other people who kind of remake their properties, even if it's not directly in a directorial capacity, like Sam Raimi, produced the evil dead remake and yeah. uh was very involved in the creative process of that and is still working on getting another evil dead out there so um i mean if he doesn't direct a doctor strange movie first which we just found out so <laughs> um and uh but i mean in the grand scheme of remakes and reboots is this a situation that's kind of like to your minds as of now like kind of like a, a a a diamond in the rough to a certain extent because it's rare where you get a remake that is as lauded as the original or at least as respected. And I don't know if that's a situation that um, in your research leading up to your podcast that you guys have seen in particular because I certainly haven't. Well, I mean, when I think about the remake reboot situation um at least of you know the more modern era i think typically yeah there's either a it's you know one's clearly better than the other yeah, it, yeah. you can make a, a distinction between you know and whether or not it's the remake that's better or the original that's better mm -hmm. um varies but you know it's a little bit this one i think there's a lot more of a gray area where you could say like both have their merits both are watchable decent films um even if you have a preference of one over the other uh, I think that almost comes down to like a personal preference more than a right that mm -hmm. it's technically more proficient or a better film. Right. Yeah. I mean, cause 
for me the, the remake i always judge everything by is oceans 11 because the the new one was so much fun like it is the far superior movie yeah <laughs> like it, it just is but i mean you've got the rat pack palling around in vegas there is no way that is not a fun watchable movie right but the story the story could is... give two shits about the story Precisely. <laughs> yeah. um and actually i thought of another one just now invasion of the body snatchers that's true uh, 1950 version by Don Siegel versus the uh, Philip Kaufman version from mm-hmm. the 70s. I think that that's an. I don't know if that's a gray area so much as just like, well, okay, one one is made under specific auspices and circumstances, and the other one is made um, on an alternate scale where that remake is a lot more high budget um, and a much more in tuned with sci-fi of its era. Whereas the original Don Siegel version is very much a 50s invasion movie of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, Pod versus, you know, a giant ant. Um, but, but, but they both tackle, and I think one's more concerned with the Red Scare than the other. But that's, yeah. you know, then, and so it, in much like Man Who Knew Too Much, one deals with one era versus another era. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, it's, 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 it's fascinating to think about it. I mean, like, my judgment for remakes is always going to be how they came up with the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street that they did. Because <laughs> I like Jackie Earl Haley, and it's a shame because that movie does things that just completely make it unwatchable. <laughs> but then there are parts that I like. So, you know, like. I mean, here's my question about the man who knew too much. Like, was this a, if anyone knows, was this a personal favorite of Hitch's, or was it his one British property that was available to him to make. Like, why did he choose this movie over something like The Lady Vanishes, Sabotage? I mean, because he had a whole slew of hits, and I would argue better movies than this one. So do we know what it was about this particular one that he was like, this one is the crossover to America? I, You know what? I would need to look more further into that, but I will tell you that based on the research that I gathered in prepping this show... You know, The Lady Vanishes, um, Sabotage, um, even 39 Steps, they're all properties that are directly adapted from a novel source. Oh, that makes sense. And Man Who Knew Too Much is a situation where they took the framework of the Bulljog Drummond movie they were going to do and made it their own original thing. And the title is taken from a book that he already owned the rights to. Oh, okay. So... I think it is a situation where he has the rights to do it, whereas... If he were to remake The Lady Vanishes, I think that would be a matter of him having to reacquire a property. Mm-hmm. And him being in America, that changes the situation, number one, because the copyright law, like the acquisition stuff is different and 20 years has passed. But also, this is a little thing about Hitch that is interesting. When he buys the properties to a novel, he tries to get it as cheap as possible. <laughs> and uh, at times, he will not reveal to the author of the property that is making that he's making the purchase from who he is. Poor Robert Block. <laughs> yeah, Robert Block's one. Um although like you know I I think Robert Block ended up being fine because in the in the in his legacy as an author, he is an author that stands apart from that movie and mm-hmm. that story. Like he did stuff that's beyond that. 
he wrote a Star Trek. He wrote a Star Trek movie about cats and ghosts. So, you know, like, he's got his own legacy. Um, but, like, there's stuff uh, there. There's stuff in, in the cases of Strangers on a Train. Mm-hmm. It's a situation where he got the rights to it for a song, and the author didn't know about it. <laughs> but then, but then on, that author is uh, elevated a, a lot thanks to Strangers on a Train. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Trouble with Harry is also another situation where he was not telling somebody up front who, who like, Hello, <laughs> I like your book. <laughs> shut up! How much? Shut up! <laughs> That's pretty much what it is. I think that there's a confluence of that too, and also, this is a situation with the man who knew too much. Hitchcock deals with this a lot, where he owes somebody a picture, yeah, because he kind of spreads himself amongst the studios in the '50s into the '60s, and he doesn't really settle into a home until Psycho where he's leaving Paramount but making one more film for him, but on the Universal lot. And then he completely moves into the Universal MCA territory, where he is then dealing with that that crew and specifically Lou Wasserman for the rest of his career, up until literally the last movie. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, in terms of the specific thing, because like, I would love to see a remake of The 39 Steps from a 50s perspective, Mm -hmm. because it seems like you could have more to do with the action scenes in that respect. Because, like, the gyrocopter in 39 Steps well, is mean, amazing. In a way, you got it. North by Northwest. I did. That's yeah. true. I did. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. North by Northwest is the American 39 Steps. It is the Steps. American 39 Steps. Yep, that's true. You always forget that until you just realize, like, oh, yeah, Cary Grant is Robert Donat, but <laughs> but without a lovely mustache. So. It is a lovely mustache. It is a lovely. Robert Donat could grow some facial hair like nobody else, I'll tell you. Well, gentlemen, thank you guys for coming on board to talk about the man who knew too much as this is. But I wanted to uh, congratulate you guys again on getting started with Remake Reboot Review. Uh, this you. premise sounds awesome. I, I, I cannot wait to have people be able to dive into it and you guys can chat about all aspects of film and not just one particular British filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> I need to find a way to expand my horizons. Um, but, Andrew, where can people might find out more about Pop Culture Brews? Um, so we are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Podchaser, basically anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, I'm inept. I don't have a website. Or you can get us on Twitter and Instagram, and the handle on both of those is at PopCultureBruce. Listen to that show, guys. It's pretty dope. Even if you don't like drinking, just listen to Andrew and <laughs> Tyler discuss these discuss these films while concocting these drinks. It's fucking fantastic. And, a- and Aaron, um, I know you're working on stuff. I am, yeah. I'm working on it I, with you. <laughs> at, at this point, uh, we can probably talk about it because this isn't dropping until March. And if we can't, I, I don't care anymore. Um, <laughs> we, Spoilers. Yeah, we are uh, – I'm very excited to say uh, my next feature documentary we are producing uh, in partnership with the Blasting Room Studios in Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, Blasting Room, of course, uh, was opened by members of the Descendants and All in the 90s. And uh, bands like Rise Against and Teenage Bottle Rocket – have recorded there um a ton of punk bands have all of their records mixed there by the engineers jason livermore and bill stevenson are uh pretty incredible when it comes to uh, making records and mixing music and mastering things so uh it's really exciting to be a part of that and be able to tell their their story so uh, keep an eye out for that. Hopefully, you'll see more about it in the coming months. Oh, I know I'll be seeing more of it. <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited to see this movie. Nice. Yeah. It's it's. I mean, if I can spoil it, I'm I'm on the crew with it right now. So. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, Zach's been helping us out on a few things. Yeah, so, so I've been, I've been seeing some of the progress, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm very impressed with it. 
Yeah, we've got a great crew. Uh, John Barnhart, our, our principal cinematographer, is an Emmy-winning cinematographer. He's really, really good behind the camera. Um, Kevin, um, excuse me, Kevin Kirchner, uh, my co-producer and second camera, uh, he's been shooting video for the studio on an unofficial basis for probably 15 years, so we've got some great historical footage of bands recording there and working there. Uh, so I think it's it's going to be something pretty pretty awesome when we get done with it. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you guys again for coming down. Thank you. Um, yeah, for thanks the, for having us. Yeah, uh, you can follow the Shamley Silhouette on Instagram at at the Shamley Silhouette. Um, you can find us on realnerdspodcast.com and in the Real Nerds Podcast feed on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, but until next time, good night. I put myself into the little child Je me suis mis moi, sitting on its enfant, mother's knee assis sur les genoux de sa mère, being told a story. À qui raconte une histoire. When mother pauses in her telling the child the story the child always says dit invariablement, Mommy what comes next? Maman, et qu'est-ce qui arrive après? I found in the Boileau and Narcissac second half. J'ai trouvé que dans la deuxième partie du Boileau Narcissac. Nothing came next. Rien n'arrivait après. The, everybody was shocked. Tout le monde avait été fusillé. When I said, I'm going to spill the whole story now. J'ai dit bon, ben je vais verser toute l'histoire. Soon after we started the second story. Euh, aussitôt que nous avons euh, commencé la deuxième histoire. Nous racontons tout. They said what? Give the whole thing away now? Donnez tout le tout tout toute l'intrigue maintenant tout de suite. I said yes. J'ai dit oui. Because then. Parce qu'à ce moment-là. The child will ask its mother once it knows everything, and Stuart doesn't know it. What comes next? He was one of the great geniuses of the movies. He was the master of suspense, romance, and the macabre. He was the remarkable Alfred Hitchcock. This is Jimmy Stewart, and I want to tell you about a very special event. The return of five Hitchcock pictures unseen for more than a decade. Five films from Hitch's private collection. Vertigo. Kim Novak is my co-star in this haunting tale of a detective obsessed by a woman from the past. When were you born? Hitchcock thriller.
Good evening. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette, yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman. Um, we are just moving along on this show. We are trying to not just talk about the classics, but also trying to touch on some more unknown fare. Um, uh, but unfortunately, today we're going to talk about another classic because I know that's what you all want to hear. I know what you people want. I get it. I get it. You don't care about a trouble with Harry or a Mr. and Mrs. Smith. You care about a psycho or a rear window. You want to know more about something that's been talked about to death. And we'll do it again today. But I do want to thank last episode's guests, Aaron Pendergast um, and Andrew Sanders, for sitting down and chatting with us about the man who knew too much and the man who knew too much. Um, and as always, thank, thank you to Bradley Haig for giving this place, this show a home on the Real Nerds website and for continuing to put up with this nonsense. Uh, it, it is truly, truly nonsensical. And um, we'll get into today's film. Um, so almost from the beginning of this show, we have uh, started to tackle a lot of what has been known as the Hitchcock Five. These are films that were shelved for a long time and then re-released in the mid-'80s uh, with a wonderful trailer that is introduced by Jimmy Stewart talking about why he likes these different films. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a nice testament to Hitchcock's legacy, and it's also a great way to watch Jimmy Stewart make very silly comments. Um, but uh, we uh, have talked about all of the films in the Hitchcock Five except for one, and today that will be rectified. Uh, and we're going to be talking about a film that is regarded by many as Hitchcock's masterpiece. It's a film that undoubtedly is on top of many people's Hitchcock lists. Um, it has been so re well revered that it eventually knocked off Citizen Kane on the Sight and, S Sight and Sound poll from Britain uh, in the uh, uh, early 2000s. And it is a film that continues to fascinate people, not just for its visual imagery and its attention to detail, but also its strange, obsessive story of a man trying to recreate a woman. Now, here to help me talk about this is um, a brunette who will then slowly transform into a blonde over the course of this episode, thanks to my mastery. Uh, but he's also a comedian in Denver, uh, and he's one of the more... Uh, more blunt and honest folk when it comes to certain angles of film that I've talked to. Um, but more importantly, he, he likes some Hitchcock. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Will Elder. Hello. Hey, thank I'm... you for coming down. <laughs> hey, you almost had to brave snow, but you didn't have to brave snow. Yeah. Yeah. It was worse when I woke up. Now, <laughs> now it's not so bad. Yeah. And, um, Really quickly, I wanted to uh, give you a little uh, platform here. Like, what have you been working on recently? Because I've seen your work around. Obviously, you were a big host for Open Screen Night when it was around, which, sadly, it is no longer here. Yeah. Um, uh, currently, I'm kind of just helping other people really? with projects right oh, now. Oh, yeah, you saint. I've been doing some <laughs> cinematography for, I, I did, I guess, uh, three skits, one in the work. Nice. Yeah, I still need to shoot something for it though, <laughs> and then I got to work with someone else on editing it. Uh, but it's it's in the process. Right know? on. Putting on some live shows at DOM. Nice. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. I've seen a couple of postings for it. Like, yeah, you, yeah. you have different. You had a karaoke night. <laughs> yes, I do through. a monthly karaoke night there. I do uh, um, a monthly open mic workshop 
hmm. with, with Sammy Anzer. Okay. Uh, Aaron Wentz does my karaoke show, and then I might have another open mic <laughs> going on there as well. That's I guess more of to help people practice for the camera. Right. Uh, they can get used to that present that because yes. the camera can be intimidating. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, another comedian's idea yeah. and, uh, <laughs> that he wants to do, and I'm like. Yeah, I can <laughs> I can run that thing if you if we can get people to show up to it essentially. Yeah. That's the important thing with something like Denver Open Media. If you show up to the events, they can sustain themselves. Yes. Well, and the thing Denver Open Media is already I don't know if you know this, but they will be moving into the new PBS building that's being built downtown mm. when that is finished at the end of this year. And when they move out of there, they're not going to be having their video services anymore. They will be pivoting strictly to, like, radio. Ah. So if anyone wants to use that studio. <laughs> Now's uh, the time. Yes, you have, like, a, a nine months go. or so. So there you go, nine months to make a movie <laughs> in the Denver Open Media yeah, yeah. Studio. Just enough time to gestate one. It is a sa <laughs> it's a shame to a certain respect because it could be a great place for, you know, facilitating those kind of uh, yeah. those kind of projects and dedication i know that the house of pod had, like opened up not too long ago and it's been helping to try to facilitate podcasting across yeah the and state. honestly their podcasting stuff may stay that round though because mm. i think they're going to stick around with like audio stuff they're just not going to keep the video for it because right. they're not going to have that space and that equipment anymore so you're saying that hitchcock would not be a part of the Denver <laughs> open media in nine months <laughs> no just his uh only his radio shows <laughs> uh, his radio uh, his one his one radio appearance yes. <laughs> that wasn't a radio appearance it's well, a, just played on loop yeah fun fact uh hitchcock uh, the Lodger was one of the first um, uh, episodes of Lux Radio Theater, and they brought on Hitchcock to introduce it, but it was an actor playing Hitchcock. <laughs> he was like, no, I'm not going to do fucking he radio. Did, he didn't have a voice for radio. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I don't. To television, though, because they can see me, and then they oh, can yeah. just kind of insert their own voice in there. They can make me sound <laughs> like a squirrel if they want me to. <laughs> um, but um, I'm going to ask you the question that I ask every new guest. Okay. Um, how do you get into somebody like Hitchcock? Um, or is it even an obsession with you? Or are you just kind of a casual Hitchcock viewer? I went to film school. I oh, have, no. I, <laughs> yes, I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts in film production, uh, which is why I don't do film for a living. <laughs> uh, but, uh, they, you know, film history, they showed us Hitchcock. My dad's always been into movies. Like, my dad got me into movies because he just had vhs tapes around as a guy i was always watching something with him and so he's always been like a film buff because he was into like the high art movies yeah, yeah and so you got exposed at an early age yeah and then i went to film school and obviously he's important to the development of where film is today mm -hmm. and so watch some hitchcock films in college. Yeah, right on. And then you just go and pick up some on your own. You know, IFC shows them all the time. I'm surprised people don't want to talk about The Trouble with Harry. I yeah. think that's a pretty good one. Well, <laughs> I think it's a film that it's just, it's not, it's, whether it's that they feel that there's no depth or it's just it's not as fun to talk about as the other films, kind of like today's film. Yeah. But I The mean, Trouble with Harry is a film where I'm just like, there's another world where Hitchcock makes more comedies like this. Like, mm -hmm. It would have been a very interesting experience. And, you know, Trouble with Harry didn't do terribly well here in this country financially and it did much better overseas um but he's always got the humor that's in trouble with harry is string sprinkled about all of his films like right. you can find it in like psychos full of it like it it doesn't always read that way because it's initially meant to be a horror movie right. but like he's always said that psycho is a comedy so. but he i mean he clearly has a fascination with the death i think every single one of his movies is about 
either people dying, people planning to be killed, or people reconciling with death. Yeah, <laughs> or that, something. That, you know. that droll British sensibility, but also that macabre humor that yeah. like that translates very well in Europe, but like in America, like it's it's it holds a fascination of like dark obsession, but also just like ooh, this is this is terrible. It's it's weird because then it becomes it's almost like it's it's a form of filmmaking that then becomes commercialized to people like Tim Burton. And that's not, right. a, that's not a ma- uh, whack at Tim Burton's reputation. Right, like right. It's just the, that you see where things start. Exactly. And then who sort of takes those themes and runs with it in a commercially better. Exactly. Aspect, so so what I'm saying is that hot topic doesn't happen without <laughs> Halford Hitchcock. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and yes, he does want a Led Zeppelin t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you remember the first Hitchcock film that you would have seen or the one that stuck out to you the most? Honestly, the first Hitchcock movie I ever saw probably was The Birds. Yeah, that's and a, I think that's I a saw, one. And I think I saw that on TV with my dad, which I'm going to tell you the short story was based off of, I think is much better than the movie, uh, especially yeah. the ending. De Maurier's, uh, <laughs> De Maur- it's a, kind of like a tone piece, too. It's not. Yeah, and it's like the explanation, I guess, is the weather phenomenon just makes it a little <laughs> too cold one night and the birds freak out, I guess. Wow. But, so it's, it's, it's much more logical. <laughs> yeah, and the ending of it is just like they give up. The the dad's like, yeah, we're gonna die in this house, and he like tells his family to go to sleep, and he like throws his last pack of cigarettes in the fire or something because he's like, yep, we're yeah, dead, we're, we're, done. <laughs> we're, we're fucking done, yeah. Um, and uh, whereas the ending of the birds, as we discussed on a previous episode, it, it is much more of a like ethereal, like, well, like the birds have pretty much taken over the mm-hmm. bay. So, uh, but the lovebirds are cool. They didn't hurt anyone. They they didn't. <laughs> but they're caged, so they it, it's you know it's also an allegory for the Civil War. So but, uh, okay, all right. No, it's not. Oh. <laughs> I was like, maybe that was what I never picked up on. on no, that movie. see, that's what happens when you read too much into films. <laughs> um, but okay, so it, so you are a birds guy. That's a common theme around here. That was the first one I saw. Yeah, and it was mainly just the the attraction of just like birds attack people. Yeah. Fucking neat. And then Psycho is one you hear about all the time, but I didn't see that until film history but uh, in college but i think that's actually a great one did as you, well did I, you know the ending going in um oh of that yeah because i had seen the remake with vince vaughn <laughs> um you know on tv before i ever saw the original so, but yeah. i hadn't ever seen the beginning and that's actually what's interesting about that movie is that there aren't many movies that kill off their main character and then have to switch to a new main character. And there's like a moment in that movie where the camera's wandering around like, ah, yeah, well, <laughs> like my subject matter's gone. Where am I looking at? Now? Well, <laughs> it's funny you bring that up because today's film technically does that. Yes, right. <laughs> technically does that. Um, we'll go ahead and jump into Vertigo right now. Okay. Um, so, I mean, a big thing to uh, talk about when it comes to Vertigo is that it is regarded as one of the most personal Hitchcock films ever made. Um, it is a film that a lot of people allude to when it comes to not just Hitchcock as a filmmaker, but Hitchcock as a person. Um, a big part of that being the element of Vertigo where James Stewart is basically trying to create the image of the perfect woman in the form of Kim Novak. Um, and, uh, what are the consequences of that obsession? But which I think is even further interesting is he has an obsession with, as you say, this perfect woman, but 
he only has an obsession with her because she was presented to him yeah. as such when she was never that to begin with. So it, it's like illusions upon illusions, you know, like there's a, there's a movie that, uh, that, uh, uh that has a title that's uh, very much about that subject. It's called Gaslight. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wasn't that, wasn't that a play or something? Uh, it was a play. And then, uh, it became a, uh, feature film with Charles Boyer, um, yeah. and, uh, Ingrid Bergman. And it's, uh, it, it's a fantastic film and Warner archive just put it out on Blu-ray so you can check it out. Um, there, um, like probably for twenty bucks, not bad for an older movie like that that's being held in preservation like that. Um, but yeah, it's 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 fascinating how the the story works itself in such a way that it's not it's not uh, a raw expose on Hitchcock's uh, methods in uh, uh, creating a star um, as it has been referenced as there, there's other ways to put it and mm -hmm. uh you know we'll dive into that a little bit because uh there was this person who was supposed to be in this movie that ended up not being in this movie gotcha. um, for reasons but um long story short though it, it it's uh it's a film that also is driven purely by emotion it's not really driven by plot no matter how many times you are told the story of vertigo the story of vertigo is probably the least important part of it because it's much more about the emotion and the character portrayal of Jimmy Stewart and how he functions as a person. And uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, it's uh, an extension of things he does in other films like Rebecca, where it's like, this is the ultimate, you know, character piece. And what's more, it's the ultimate character piece for a Hitchcock theme that he is, a, he is quote unquote obsessed over. Um, but it is also a mystery. Um, and it is also a thriller. Uh, and, it it it's funny because the title of the film is the MacGuffin, yeah. which is which is a fun thing to think about. Um, well, and it's it's funny to me that you are so focused on the character and stuff because it is actually the mystery plot that <laughs> is what intrigues me. Because really? I, I am into noirs and like detective <laughs> movies, and that's I think why I like the plot of this movie so much is because he is a detective mm -hmm. who he's a retired detective <laughs> who is specifically hired to be a patsy. Yeah. Like, it was never intended to make him think he was crazy. It was never intended for him to become obsessed with anyone. He was just supposed to be the fall guy so this dude could kill his wife and get away with it. Exactly. And, but, like, both him and the other person he's used for this plot to make his plot work kind of fall for each other in a weird way. Yeah. Uh, just like the other Although unexpected. one of them falls in love with someone pretending to be someone else and the other person's like, oh, I am into this guy, but he only likes me when I'm pretending to be this other person. Yeah. <laughs> it's... Which leads to the complication of the plot, which ends up being the other dude's undoing. Yeah. But puts Jimmy Stewart's character through a weird psychological <laughs> place Yo, as well. Yeah, he's he's put through a ringer. And, and actually, the way you're describing it does describe Hitchcock's technique in how he created a star. So it's, so in a way... <laughs> oh, we're, so so he would drive people insane. Too. Well, yeah, <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll talk about it a little bit because okay, this, is like, right. this is basically kind of like part one of three different episodes where uh, Hitchcock's... Uh, methodology will be broken down um and not always for the better um you so are analyzing him in totality oh yeah exactly <laughs> so um i mean i'm and it's mainly to focus on the films because they do vertigo is a film that draw that has been drawn upon over time over the course of film history from the moment it was released up to now um you can't you, you could never say that martin scorsese or brian de palma didn't watch vertigo a lot because there's a lot of things 
in Vertigo that tie into their filmography. Like there's an element of Taxi Driver uh, where Vertigo it plays an important part. There's a important part of uh, every Brian De Palma movie stuck with Vertigo. So amongst other Hitchcock pieces. Um, but we'll like go over the basic facts of this film. So this film comes after the man who knew too much remake. Um, and uh, he reteams with Jimmy Stewart uh, for the film. Uh, to go a little bit further back, though, uh, during the premiere of Strangers on a Train, Hitchcock became entranced with the city of San Francisco. Uh, he likened it to a uh, an American version of Paris um, just because of the way it's structured. It is a beautiful city. Um, I mean, if you watch The Last Black Man in San Francisco, you realize that it's, you know, being treated terribly. <laughs> but, you know, um, the uh, uh, but the so this film uh, was a was an a was a. a an opportunity for him to film in San Francisco and tell a San Francisco story. And as you were alluding to like noir and uh, detective films of that, it is a noir film. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's shot in color, but it's a noir film and it operates exactly on that level, treating San Francisco as this intimidating city. Yeah. He just did it during the day. So there's not a whole lot of those shadow. I don't like, (laughs) no, 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 not this one. I like shadow. I I really do. I like the shadow. Oh, that Orson Welles. I, I hate him technically, but I also <laughs> love that show. I love it. I, I only listened to his season. Um, but so, but there was a novel that um, he found that could kind of basically uh, uh, set the scene for this kind of piece. Um, uh, the Living and the Dead, um, known by its um, uh, French title, D'Entre la Mort. Um, and uh, what essentially happens with the formation of this script is that he... Uh, uh, there's a there's a wonderful interview with Truffaut and Hitchcock um, that uh, talks about his entire filmography, obviously. But in this portion in particular, um, uh, Hitchcock alludes to the notion of, you know, when you're a child and you're sitting on your mother's lap and your mother's telling you a story and in- inevitably the child says, what comes next, mom? And uh, this was an attempt to create a whole film uh, that tells you the story and then you are the child asking, well, what happens next? Because Vertigo is technically two films. Yeah. One's a 90-minute movie, and the other one's about a 38-minute movie. Agreed, um, yeah. Because I, I remember the first time I saw the movie, I guess one of the other things that piqued my interest about it is until, until you get to the end of that first movie, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, man, is Hitchcock doing a supernatural movie? Yeah. I was like, did he actually take the supernatural angle? You know? And then I was like, oh, shit, no, this it, was a detective scheme. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's weird. Like, it does draw upon, like, like it's it, similar to Rebecca. Like, he is drawing off a supernatural tone without explicitly saying, like, the character Gavin says ghost or, like, and yeah. Jimmy Stewart She's says possessed ghost. by her, her uh, former self we can't Early. use the g word <laughs> alma we can't no go i i ain't afraid of no ghost past but I, life or whatever yeah, yeah it's <laughs> it's like this this is reincarnation yes much like the buddha which who i resemble i i want to talk about this concept <laughs> um but uh so he uh commissions a couple different scripts um the one of the foundational scripts for it was Alec Koppel, but Alec Koppel's uh, draft is a, uh, eventually kind of really uh, put aside and uh, replaced by Samuel Taylor. 
Uh, Samuel Taylor, um, a very noted playwright, mostly known for writing the play that would become the film Sabrina and then the other film Sabrina. <laughs> Guess which one's better? Uh, <laughs> I, I'll give you a hint. It's not the one with Han Solo. Um, but it's the one with Rick Blaine. Um, but so they uh, create this script and uh, Samuel Taylor is noted as saying that the biggest reason, one of the biggest reasons that this film succeeds as a deeper picture than most of Hitchcock's work is because it's working off of pure emotion um, at a, even at a plot, at a basic story level, not plot level, but story level. Like the, it's about Samuel Taylor describes it as the man falling in love for the first time, which is very fascinating when you watch this movie, if you're going on a man falling in love with another man's wife for the first time. Yes. Another man's wife that that man set him up (laughs) to intimately follow in detail but again, because he's intentionally trying to cause that to happen. Yeah, you know, l- l- he's in, he wants his judgment cloud. But when you watch it, you're like, "Damn, aren't you? Where's your professionalism, dude?" Yeah, <laughs> look, look, Will, you have to understand. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I really, really don't. <laughs> you know, I made this because I had to work out some demons. <laughs> um, but so uh, the movie is released in 1958, um, directed by you know who. Uh, produced by You Know Who, <laughs> uh, starring James Stewart, Kim Novak, Barbara Barbara Belgetti's, uh Tom Helmore, and Henry Jones, with music by Bernard Herrmann, cinematography by Robert Burks, edited by George Tomasini, costumes by Edith Head. The gang's all here, and Alma's there because she's consulting on every project that Hitchcock does. So we're basically left with the dream team in one of their biggest masterpieces to date. There's a lot of films from the fifties era that has this exact team all working in tandem with each other, but this is the one that people point to the most. Um, and we'll jump right into the plot of the film. Um, we open up on a ladder (laughs) and, uh, and suddenly realize that hands are climbing up it. And, uh, it's a police chase, uh, on top of the, uh, the buildings of San Francisco. Um, and that's where we meet, our intrepid uh, hero, John Scotty Ferguson, played yeah. by none other than me. <laughs> running running along the rooftops with, like, a beat cop. Yeah. And, like, full blue suit. You, know? you, have, to, you have to have backup. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, like, it's also be like, he's a cop. Yeah. See? Yeah. He's a cop. I'm a detective because I dress suave and fucking cool, and he just dresses like a dork. <laughs> and he was old. He's one he's nightstick away from being in a Charlie Chaplin movie. <laughs> um, so there's... But they are chase, they're chasing a criminal down. Uh, criminal doesn't matter. He's not important to any part of this story. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, he, they, um, much like in The Matrix when Trinity is uh, running away, they are running on this roof to try to catch her. But unlike uh, Trinity, James Stewart cannot make the jump, mostly because he's new to The Matrix and doesn't, <laughs> doesn't believe he can make the jump. Um, but uh, that, actually, like watching that sequence again this morning, I was just like, "This is that's this is where the Matrix gets." It. <laughs> like, um, so, but uh, he, uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart, uh, fails to jump uh, to the next roof that's higher up and uh, is hanging off the ledge. Uh, and we get our first instance of the vertigo shot. The vertigo shot is where you zoom in really quick while uh, tracking back simultaneously. Um, it's a wonderful effect that. Uh, so it is. It is a zoom in with a pan out. Yes, exactly. Okay. So or you're a dolly out. I y- guess, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. So you're okay. zooming in as you're tracking back. Yep. And that actually proved to be difficult for uh, other shots in the film because <laughs> it's you. You have to if you, in order to have the control of the camera and whatnot. You kind of don't. It, it, it doesn't allow for a subject and whatnot unless you're especially from the angles he's trying to do. Um, a good use of the vertigo effect 
uh, used, I want to say about like not even 20 years later, is in Jaws, where Roy Scheider's on the beach, and then uh, they realize that the shark is attacking, and you just see the vertigo effect happening to Roy Scheider when he realizes he has to get into action. Um, so this shot... Uh, basically sets off the vertigo that Jimmy Stewart experiences in the movie, which is the MacGuffin. Like it's not necessarily important that he has this, what this condition means nothing to the point of the movie really so much as it's uh, a catalyst to get him to places. Yeah, it Um, is. It's the whole reason he is selected to even be the pawn in the plot. Yeah. But it has (laughs) nothing to really do with him as a character, like beyond like surface level. Like I I can't go up those stairs. Other other (laughs) than preventing him from doing the one important task. Yeah. Yeah. Like he doesn't talk about it. It doesn't stop him from doing literally anything else. Yeah. In the movie. Yeah. (laughs) Like, look, vertigo is not going to stop me from drinking scotch in the morning. (laughs) Like, well, you don't have to be high up to do that. No, no, no. I mean, like, I, I mean, if you're talented, you are. I don't think I could ever do that. No, no, no. I could drink scotch while on the ground. I, I often do it many times, sometimes on the street. <laughs> um, but so um, it uh, cuts away uh, to clearly, uh, and uh, uh, we should mention um, uh, the beat cop, um, uh, the, our wonderful beat cop uh, dies because he tries to save Jimmy Stewart. Yes. And so R.I.P. beat cop. And like, I... I couldn't tell if Jimmy Stewart accidentally pulled him off or if he just sort of slipped and fell forward. It looks like he slipped. He and chooses falls. a really bad position to yeah. try and grab him and pull him. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Mr. Sh- oh, 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 no, Scotty. Let me, ca- let me come catch you. Oh, no, I yeah. slipped on a tire. Well, and, and he's like top heavy. He like tumbles forward over him. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, and th- this cop has, you know, seen better, seen better <laughs> health days. Like he was probably once a fit young man, but uh, yeah. the, the troubles of the world have gotten to he him. He was probably like a day away from retirement or something. <laughs> oh, my. Man. <laughs> Mendoza. <laughs> um, so I love that. If, if that was a line in the movie, <laughs> I can't. I can't. can't I, you got to come. You got to come, Jimmy. I'm one day away from retirement, and I want my last bus to be successful. <laughs> so um, it cuts, and Jimmy Stewart's been recovering. Um, uh, oh know. yeah, with his. She's his psychiatrist. Who, no, who she, is she? She's his college friend. Who they oh. were once romantically involved. Now yes. they're just friends. But and they're she, always like hanging out, and he's like she, constantly telling her his problems. Yeah, <laughs> she's she's the best friend character. Okay, this is a I never rom-com. I never quite understood who she. I was like, who is she? She <laughs> she is none other than Midge Goodsir, and uh, and to my mind, yeah. the best character in the movie because <laughs> Midge <sighs> understands that all of this is ridiculous. <laughs> um, but Midge, played by the great Barbara Bel Geddes, um, fun little production fact. Um, uh, when she's doing the painting scenes in the um, <laughs> yeah. in uh in her moments um uh Hitchcock just told her to not act to just kind of do and what you get is the actual personality of Barbara Bell okay. kind of so she's just being that, herself there which is great actually yeah, like, yeah and Ken Novak had the same thing to say which is um you know she wondered why she was cast in the movie by Hitchcock and I mean amongst other reasons a big part of it is just he would say like look I hired I I cast you for the part because I want what you have but I'm, I, all I ask is that you stand where I tell you to stand, speak how I tell you to speak in, speak in the rhythm that I want you to speak. <laughs> so, like, that is controlling, mm-hmm. but it is also just, like, I like the personality that you're bringing to this character, so you would be perfect for this. But there but are you certain... need to say those lines, and yeah. you need to hit these marks. Exactly. Like, it's no different than saying, like, well, I want Johnny Depp to play a pirate, because mm-hmm. I know he can be a pirate. I just have to give him the burden of this dialogue. So, <laughs> Which is funny, going back to Vertigo itself, is almost... 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly what's happening in the second part of the movie. Yeah, and it's <laughs> it's it's actually technically it's what's happening the whole movie because yeah. if it's not Jimmy Stewart telling her how to dress and behave, it's the other guy. Yeah. You know? But we don't see it on screen. Yeah. So like for all we know, like she's more into it because like obviously there's a plot to get money, but it's also implied that she was romantically involved with him and that he ditches her. Yeah. Um, uh, but we're yeah. we're jumping a little bit ahead because um so he's looking for I want I I want to I want to be able to get over my fear of vertigo and I'll start with a step ladder. <laughs> and of course I want to fly, Midge. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell me I can't fly. Uh, it's just a simple matter of perpetual motion with my arms <laughs> until I until I suddenly am able to lift myself onto the sky. <laughs> Just don't look down. <laughs> Which, by the way, so he gets on like a stool, like a small stool, and he starts doing it like, look up, down, up, down. And then she's like, well, okay, I'll make this actually challenging. And she brings him an actual step stool. He gets on the second, the first step, steps, second steps, gets on the third one, and he's looking up, down, and he foolishly looks at an angle that immediately looks outside the window. Yeah, right. <laughs> so either she intentionally put the stool there knowing he'd do that, right. or Jimmy Stewart just has no sense to not look out the window. and <laughs> The rear window. And Yeah, I was going to say, poor him. He just, like, only a year ago in another <laughs> life, he just fell out a window and oh. broke both of his legs. Oh, you know? <laughs> only a year ago was I in just this one room, just, like, minding my own business, and then Raymond Burr's killing people across the street. <laughs> I like to think that that's really why he has very goes from from the previous movie not fall, really yeah <laughs> yeah i didn't marry grace kelly but that fall out the window really uh it's why i stopped being a journalist a photojournalist uh, i i became a detective uh, yeah I, I i was a doctor in the middle and i had a very annoying kid when we were in morocco he got kidnapped <laughs> like, so now i'm just a detective but now i'm a retired detective because i'm not going to be a desk jockey that's the thing he doesn't want to be a desk jockey he wants to be out in action but he can't yeah. because of his vertigo. Um, but so not he's, fit for field duty. Yeah, but he gets an invite from an old college friend, uh, Gavin Elster, uh, and Gavin has called it. Gavin runs a shipyard, uh, and uh, we get our Hitchcock. I'm glad you remember these details. Yeah. I was like, what did Gavin do, and how did he know him? <laughs> you're, you're really talking to Hitch. I, I have inhabited this dork wearing the funny Scottish hat to 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 tell you my story, Will. To, to good, good. I, my, I need these details. My last in. will and testament. <laughs> my last will. Um, Wheaton. Your um, last testament to Will. Testament to, this is the testament to will elder <laughs> it's not a will it's just more me talking to this random man in denver <laughs> um but it's a shipyard and we get our hitchcock cameo in there and hitchcock is just walking down the street with a trumpet and i'm just like what's a trumpet doing near a shipyard but it doesn't matter much like a mcguffin it doesn't matter <laughs> uh so he goes to the shipyard gavin uh gavin elster uh uh reveals to scotty that he wants to hire him on a private basis because he suspects that his wife is in danger. And the reason he suspects his wife is in danger is because she is starting to visit the sites of a, uh, the sites and sounds and uh, locations of a woman who in the uh, early to mid 1800s uh, was driven mad and committed suicide because uh, it, because it, and it's revealed later in the bookstore because she, her, she was thrown away while her child kept by the man that was her lover and uh, and she basically was driven mad, would uh, wander the streets asking, where's my child? She was known as Sad Carlotta. Um, but uh, at this point, Jimmy Stewart still has to learn that. But it's just basically follow my wife around mm -hmm. and uh, find out what's going on. And it, like, basically, I want to make sure 
that she is actually insane before I commit her, which, you know, like, obviously yeah. we know that he's the bad guy, but, you know, props to him for being mm-hmm. responsible, yeah. the, at least in, in terms of his, you know, facade. <laughs> it sounds logical. That's the thing. Like, he creates yeah. a logic behind yes. it, at least from the sense of a 50s There's era. a reason I need you to follow my wife around. Because I think she's not yes. so. Because yes. <laughs> I may need to have my property locked up. <laughs> If she thinks she's a ghost, then uh, I certainly don't want to be a Ghostbuster. <laughs> oh, so that's right. You want me to be a Ghostbuster? <laughs> oh, I ain't afraid of no ghosts. <laughs> so uh, Jimmy Stewart follows her around, and the whole sequence of him following her around, uh, pure cinema in Hitchcock's words, no dialogue, mm-hmm. s- slight sound effects. We're telling this story through pictures. Lots of San Francisco shots. Lots of San Francisco. <laughs> uh, you know, I thought that the most... Uh, the biggest successor to my legacy as a filmmaker was Tommy Wiseau because of how he shot San Francisco. I was just like, it takes right after my heart. He had the audacity to show that bridge more than five times. (laughs) Um, So he follows her around. She's kind of, she's going to various places. She goes shopping for flowers at one point. Then she goes to a graveyard and visits the grave. We look at the grave and it's the grave of uh, Carlotta Valdez. Uh, who was born in 1831, dies in 1857 at the age of 26 because she uh, is driven mad. She then goes to San Juan Batiste um, mission, uh, which this mission that they're filming in, the exterior uh, is shot on location, and the addition of map paintings and Mm. set design to create the bell tower because the bell tower had been burned down previously. So he wanted to recreate it. Um, so he does that through combining, uh, there's a little bit of location shooting and then the majority of it is shot on set. I thought that, um, I guess this is slightly jumping ahead again as well, but the shot after the incident at the bell tower where it's like looking down at, Everything, you know, and he's like up top and they're down here and he's walking like that always looked a little weird to me. And I guess that explains why. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's well, and it's it's Hitchcock does this a lot where he tries to create a sense of scope through the art of matte painting. And at the time, matte painting looks a lot more realistic because of not just film quality, but also just, you know, people's suspension of disbelief. If you do a matte painting mm-hmm. now, it uh, would probably feel awkward although probably not as awkward as some cgi films like i think some cgi films like the background is so obvious it's nuts i don't know if you've seen um i mean i'm sure you have uh (laughs) the brendan fraser the mummy yes 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 and then did you see the mummy three the tomb of the dragon emperor yeah the cg in the third one is worse than the cg in the first movie and and it's so bad i didn't keep watching the movie (laughs) yeah and if you i mean let's face it if you watch the mummy today it the CGI doesn't entirely hold up, but you're you're captivated because the story is captivating you. If the story it can, works well enough for you to be like, okay, they're dealing with these things. And yeah, this happening. it's when you get too ambitious with those effects that then they start not working because then you're trying to shove too much in there. Like that first Mummy movie has smaller. It's it's not as ambitious as the other ones. Like the most ambitious part of those films is the sand that is controlled by Emotep. Yeah, right. <laughs> and that doesn't look terrible today, right. but like you can see the like the the work at hand. Yeah. But Obviously, it's easier to CG moving sand than like a bunch of things with faces. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. I didn't have to fucking <laughs> do that. I, we 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 crafted it by hands, like men, <laughs> um, stupid obsessed men. Um, so 
he um uh uh, he follows her to this mission, and then she he follows her back to uh, the Empire Hotel, uh, where she's staying in a uh, in, in a, one of the upstairs rooms. Um, he goes in and finds out that uh, the room belongs to a Carlotta, um, but that she is not actually there, even though he j- I just saw her go upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you know Jimmy Stewart uh, in in Rear Window he is very ignorant of the law in in uh because he's assuming that like oh you could just go into Raymond Burr's house and yeah. just like s- ruffle through his things and find evidence it's it's very very easy to do in vertigo, acceptable in court exactly in vertigo he is actually part of the law and he is knowingly exploiting the law by flashing his badge he is retired sir <laughs> i don't I, I don't care get the job done at all costs i don't care if i fool this this nice innkeeper <laughs> um he's paid to do a job <laughs> she, she can just she could just fuck right off. My job is more important than her duties and her possible firing. <laughs> I don't care about you, you or you. I care about this blonde up there. Um, so he goes up there. She's not there. Uh, he reports back to uh, Gavin. And wasn't there a point when he was following her where she's like in a museum or something yes. looking, looking at a painting of Carlotta? Yeah, the paint- it's important because you see like the brooch and like the hairstyle. Exactly. And, no, yeah. thank you for po- thank uh, you for reminding me. She he goes she's she goes to the museum at one point. He watches her watching a painting of the sad Carlotta and uh, is recognizing right away that the hairstyles are similar. So something eerie is going on that could feasibly support Gavin's theory about possession. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, he asked the museum owner, or the museum guide, like, excuse me, what's that painting? Like, the painting is at Carlotta. And he just goes, uh, uh, you know, uh, he uh, the museum guide shows it to him in the brochure, and he's just like, may I have that? And the museum goes, certainly. And I'm just like, there's no way <laughs> that me- brochures are handed out for free at museums anymore. <laughs> you have to pay $14 for that yeah. shit now. There's a picture of that painting on that brochure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's no internet, so they can't. <laughs> you can well, I can Google that picture. Yeah. <laughs> I'll print it out and show it to all my friends. <laughs> I'll put it on my Google Drive. <laughs> I'll blow it up. I'll frame it. <laughs> I just I, I just proxied the Mona Lisa. I might I might even do some fun Photoshop on it and make it an advertisement for my comedy show. <laughs> um, but so uh, yeah, he, so he goes to the museum and whatnot. He he gets all the information about it. He goes back to Gavin and. Gavin's just then just thoroughly convinced that his wife is being possessed. And, you know, Jimmy Stewart. Suddenly it's a ghost story. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, I told you I'm afraid of no ghost, but this is starting to spook me a little bit, sir. Um, I'll have to call my friends uh, Egon and uh, Venkman, and we'll, we'll get that mystery I'm sure it's solved. just psychological. You know? <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's any reason to be afraid of giant marshmallow men. I really think we'll be fine. <laughs> um, so, um, so, yeah, so uh, Jimmy Stewart continues to follow her. And uh, eventually, uh, she is drawn to the San Francisco Bay, uh, where then she proceeds to jump off the bay and into the river. Uh, Jimmy Stewart sees it, and he goes down the stairs of the bay. And Carlotta drowns herself is how she died, right? Yes, she yes. drowned herself. Okay. So, so this she, is yes. how, like, this is to recreate that. Yes. So <laughs> she, he pulls her out of the water, gets her uh, to his apartment, where um, he's... Uh, gotten her undressed and uh, made sure that she's warm she wakes up in a bed in completely different clothes and he's like don't worry it's all right you're another man's wife yeah (laughs) it's not it's not my concern um but yeah so he's uh made sure that she's safe 
uh, she uh, gets into a robe and, you know, sits by the fire. He's like, would you like some coffee? And like, no, or you better have, he's really pushing that coffee on her. He's like, you better wake, you're, you're, you're not, you're not drunk, but you're definitely insane. So maybe this will help you come to your senses. Yeah, yeah. Uppers, and, uppers always help yeah, with schizophrenia. Ca- caffeine really helps with mental health. It does nothing to exacerbate yeah. it whatsoever. <laughs> so she starts kind of. Uh, right from the get-go, she's already kind of starting to, uh, much like Gavin is, is kind of gaslighting him a little bit with trying to assure him that she's fine, even though she's not, even though she is. <laughs> but she's not. But he doesn't know that. So, um, you know, she, um, he's trying to get a little more information out of her. He calls Gavin to let her, let her him know what happened. And then while he's talking to Gavin, she leaves in her car, gets out, run, runs away, um, uh, Midge, meanwhile, sees what's going on from a distance and is, you know, perplexed by everything. Uh, and uh, uh, Midge goes to uh, actually Midge paints that picture of Carlisle. But with her face on. Yeah. And so there's a clear jealousy <laughs> yeah. of the situation. And... I actually think the whole Midge plot line should have had a little more to it because there's like that whole scene she paints that painting he looks at it and he's like damn you midge you know <laughs> why, why would you do that yeah, you I'm jerk not, i'm not into you you know and i don't she, like glasses and then she's like about to pull her fucking hair out yeah and like throwing a fit and i'm like oh my god it's, what's happening here it's, it's interesting because there is a version of this film where she has uh more to do or okay. not more to do but like th- there's a conclusion to her story I okay guess. yeah because it just sort of yeah goes away yeah but in the in the in the main film, the one that is the masterpiece, she just goes away. Yeah. Um. But so he continues to. Uh. uh well, he, she comes back to his apartment the next day. Uh. Madeline does, and to leave a note, and, you know, he. Um. Uh. In the in the apartment the night before, he says like, "Well, I, uh, well, what do I do for a li- I wander. I'm a wandering man. <laughs> I, I'm the type of guy who likes to roll around, around, around. Um, and uh, you got a rosy on the chest. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's, she's. Uh, there's a little bit of flirting going on, and he's. She's just like, well, I was going to wander. He's like, well, I was going to do that too. Like maybe we could do it together. I mean, it's it's bad to wander alone. He's right. just like, well, if we're if we're together, we're not wandering. We're we're going somewhere with purpose and he's like well just come to the forest with me <laughs> so they uh go to the redwood forest um and they kind of explore and they kind of dig more into what madeline's feeling and what she's basically telling him that she needs to tell him to sell this story uh and they kind of uh she the more and more you you as the audience much like Stuart, are kind of getting convinced that she is who she says she is, which is the reincarnation of Carlotta. And uh, it's kind of exemplified by the scene where they're looking at the the rings. Uh, there's a tree that's cut down in the redwoods, and it shows the age of the tree by the rings and tries to give a timeline to it. So it has stuff like uh, the, um, uh, uh, the, the Magna Carta signing, right. the Declaration of Independence, when the tree was cut down. If you look closer in the middle, you see that the Battle of Endor took place there. <laughs> Uh, it's it's very hard to see because that did happen a long time ago in a galaxy far far away. It would have been before that tree's time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, I there was a great part where Jimmy Stewart did say, "I hope no teddy bears come out and attack me." <laughs> so, uh, and they're further chatting, and he's basically exclaiming to her. 
that he owes her a, uh, like I become responsible for you because I saved your life. So again, he's much like Qui Gon Jinn and yeah. Jar Jar Binks, or a Native American. <laughs> you know, oh yeah, he's co-opting another culture there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's you know I I I like two things: Native Americans and Star Wars, <laughs> and I wanted to somehow use both in this movie. I don't. I didn't see Star Wars, but I thought of it. I thought of it before that twerp in in Modesto thought of it. <laughs> I thought. What if a smuggler shot first? <laughs> and then I and I told it to that young man. I told it to him at U, USC. I said, Mister George, you just have to have this smuggler shoot first. And you know, this young man said that he would do it. And I saw. And I'm assuming that it stayed that way to this day, <laughs> and that it hasn't changed whatsoever. I regret to inform you that they really no. they really deviated away from no. the focus of the implementations, <laughs> the implications of shooting first, and they didn't even really focus on that character too much. Well, yeah. they, they at least didn't reinsert <laughs> Jabba the Hutt in a scene that makes absolutely no sense, right? There's no reason to do that at all. I got, it depends on which version of the movie you're watching. There's so many how, these days. How many versions of this film are there, William? <laughs> it, imagine if instead of the 52 movies you made, you made like six, and then you made like 45 versions of another one of those. I, I, that sounds like a hell that nobody would want to go into. Like Once the movie's done, it's done. You go home, have scotch, and fall asleep with your dogs. <laughs> oh, man. He would... <laughs> you would be turning over in your grave today, sir. I, I probably, I just, I am right now. When, he, yeah, when that nothing, little, when that little twerp gets up here, I'm gonna beat him up. <laughs> we we live in an era where nothing is put out complete. Every, uh, everything is put out ready to be updated and reworked, and then you're gonna buy the new version and pay for the updates. Fun <laughs> fun fact: Psycho was supposed to end with a lightsaber battle, <laughs> but I cut it due to budget issues. <laughs> yeah, you might be able to put some Ewoks in there if we remake it now. Oh, maybe walk. <laughs> talkies too for all the guns <laughs> wouldn't it be fun oh for the knife <laughs> <laughs> just start stabbing Janet Lee. <laughs> somebody please on the internet do that if anybody's listening who has the capability to frame by frame put a walkie talkie in place of the knife and psycho <laughs> we just need the one shower scene that's it <laughs> Arbicast gets slashed by a walkie-talkie and falls down the stairs. <laughs> so, but anyway, so the, the the relationship of Madeline and John is kind of John Scotty is uh, basically kind of consummated on the rocks, and she's you know she's she's in a de a distressed state, yep. so she's not in her right mind, um, yeah, or at least that's what we want we want yeah, to believe. Yeah, that's like the situation you really shouldn't be consummating things Ex in. You know? Exactly. Like, wow, <laughs> well, you know, the, the the woman, the moment when this woman is traumatized beyond belief, that's that's when you go for it, man. This is the that's, 50s? This is the 50s, okay, yes, yeah. yes. Actually, that makes sense, yes. Yeah, this this is, is, it's, yes. It's, it's almost as if though, gotta, we're fine. very backwards. <laughs> um, but so, um, anyway, they, uh, he's, he's, uh, trying to figure out the uh the figure out how to cure Madeline. Yeah. She comes to the apartment and he's just like, "Well, I'm going to, you know, we'll we'll take you to the place of your fear and we'll, you know, beat this out of you once and for all." <laughs> well, um, you know what it is? It, it's just like my vertigo. When you when you when you've got to confront your fear rather than, <laughs> you know, taking healthy steps to approach it. <laughs> like you just got to jump right in. It's like a band-aid. One motion, right off. <laughs> Now for more science. Can't possibly <laughs> go wrong. <laughs> so he drives her to the the mission 
They're in a livery stable where she's recalling how there used to be much. Uh, there weren't as many carriages back then, but these <laughs> stables were filled with horses, gray ones, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart finds a fake horse that's in the livery stable as like a prop, and he's just like, "Well, there's your gray horse right now. Maybe a little hard to get him to move, but I mean, if I find a magic nanny, maybe she can make it come to life in a nice animated dream sequence." <laughs> so she's just like, "No, I have to go and do one last thing to put the past out of me forever." And she runs up to the top of the mission. Uh, Jimmy Stewart follows her. Uh, he can't uh, get up the stairs all the way because his vertigo kicks mm -hmm. in. And this is what I was alluding to with the vertigo shot. This shot in particular, they shot, they made a full set of the bell tower, the interior of the bell tower. Okay. Um, so it's a, a wonderful like spiral staircase. Yeah. Uh, it's a, um, I want to pull up the art director's name because he's uh, a, a, an integral part of uh, the construction of this. Um Oh, Henry Bumstead. Henry Bumstead, the art director for the film, had designed the interior of this bell tower. Um, and uh, for the shot where Jimmy Stewart's vertigo kicks in, where it's the zoom in and the dolly back, uh, they had to use a large scale model and do the shot that way so that they would have more control for the perspective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause okay. it would have been hard for them and it kind of shoots sideways. Cause part yes. of the issue is, is that you... cause they're looking down the spiral staircase. Yeah. And it's, and it's a set that doesn't like necessarily yeah, yeah. allow you to create a tracking. So they had to build a model and turn it on its side. Yeah. yeah. And, okay. I, I <laughs> created anti-gravity dolly tracks. Yeah. In my day, <laughs> I invented many things. I invented whirlamagigs and fishamabobs. And yeah. dolly tracks. I mean, I suppose that's easier than uh, strapping a guy to a harness and having people pull him with a pulley while he adjusts the zoom and focus. Robert, Robert, are you okay? Tug on the rope once if you think you're going to fall. Can are you lifting that hundred pound camera on your body? This is this. Is, we don't have we don't we don't have the steady cams yet. Uh, there's another young man that I met who's doing it. Uh, using that technology already as a testing ground. It's a, it's a movie about a British doctor who chases down a man in a William Shatner mask. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they he goes up to the top of the, he doesn't go up to the top of the tower, but he sees Madeline fall after screaming. After hearing her scream, yes. Yeah, and uh, he runs away from the scene because the trauma is too much for I'd him. I'd also like to point out that it is obvious when you see the body fall that this body is falling in a weird, limp way, not in the way that somebody who just threw themselves off of a building would fall, yeah. which is important to the plot. It's almost as if, though, <laughs> this woman who died... <laughs> was forced to do so yeah. <laughs> and may have already been dead yeah she, oh yeah because her neck is broken yeah, yeah that's right that's getting a little ahead but uh, it, you, you know actually it works because like sometimes hitchcock will tell you something up front but the other characters yeah. don't know it and you have to and i feel like when you watch it you do think you see the body fall and you're like oh they just used a dummy or whatever for this but then it's like you're like oh it was supposed to be a it's dead an, body. it's yeah. <laughs> yeah i thought of it yeah. i'm a genius <laughs> <laughs> um so uh, uh he runs away there's a court hearing the next day that basically determines yeah it's almost more like a an arbitration yeah. there's not there's not a jury well there's a jury is there okay but they don't retire yeah. they get up 
talk to each other in a yeah. circle and then give the verdict. <laughs> yeah. Because it's pretty much open and shut at this point. Like, she committed suicide. Uh, uh, Scotty's... This man tried, but he was incapable of saving her because of his medical condition. Th th this man was not man enough to save her because <laughs> he couldn't get over his stupid disease. What, and what, yeah, they really... What's funny is it's... I was, there's a lot of things you see in the movie where you're like, man, these characters should have not laid things on so heavy because I feel like I almost pushed Jimmy Stewart to keep thinking about it. Where, you know, they device yeah. by making him feel so bad about it. They're it's... like, who could have known he would have been incapacitated? <laughs> who could have right? known that this man with a condition that was diagnosed <laughs> would not be able to act on it because of his legitimate psychosis? Not one person here knew that at some point point he would have to go to a high place yeah and and by the way it should be pointed out it's a, it's going a little bit of a head but gavin assumes a lot that could possibly come together like the plot is very convenient and hitchcock even addresses this in the Truffaut interview where he's just like there's a hole in the story of like how does how would gavin know that Jimmy Stewart would not be able to climb those stairs. Like that's taking a yeah. Like he knows he has vertigo, but he doesn't know how bad it is. Yeah, he doesn't know the extent yeah. of it. He 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 hasn't seen his friend in a while. Because right, so. some people just get a little dizzy and fall over with vertigo. Yeah, but like Liza Minnelli. But, but, but he, <laughs> yeah, but he is like, I can't do anything because I look down. I, I <laughs> if I look down, then I'm technically. Dead, like I'm, I'm just dead inside. Like much, much like must of my life. Like, but so he's he's a well, he's not really acquitted. It's just kind of there's just like, hey, there's no way that this could have happened. So this is a, yeah. right, a, a suicidal death. Yeah, he's it, seen as not at fault. Yeah, or whatever. And yeah. it's mainly to establish that Gavin gets her fortune or yes. like the money involved. And, and I'm sure in Gavin's mind, he's like, I did you a solid, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> I got rich, and you. This doesn't tarnish your record, you know. And you got to have one last caper yeah. <laughs> before you go to a mental institution. You got to bang my wife. You got. <laughs> you got to bang my wife. You didn't. You got see to it. bang who you thought was my wife. Yeah, you didn't get to see it on screen because it's the '50s. Hey, we can't do that, Jimmy. I'm sorry. <laughs> I wanted to watch us banging. <laughs> so he's taken to a the hospital, and you know, uh, Midge is trying to get her friend that she clearly loves to oh, yeah. recover, and she's trying out the music therapy, and she's just like, "It's amazing what they can, what kind of music can be used to cure certain conditions." Like, that's why he's walking around with a trombone. Anyway, sorry, trumpet. <laughs> that's why Hitchcock has the, There's yeah, the music thing it's, everywhere. It's an illusion. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, uh, but she's like, you know, like you know, certain conditions have certain music, and I'm just like, what are you going to say next? And nymphomania is cured by rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> So she gets out. She talks to the doctor, and he's she's just like, I don't think music therapy is going to cure him. And she's and he she basically tells him like she was in love with the woman the woman that died. And what if I were to tell you that she's he's still in love with the woman? And that's basically our transition into the second movie in mm -hmm. this movie, which is about thirty eight minutes long. Uh, um, what is it? It starts with his dream sequence. Uh, yes, and he it's, like goes to bed and yeah, he's he's dreaming uh, about the different things that have occurred. Uh, a flash of imagery, a lot of design by Saul Bass, uh, who also designed the opening titles of this film, designed this sequence where you see the animation of the the corsage of the the, the bouquet of flowers that he saw her buying that kind right. of unfolds. The red flashing light. Yeah, red flashing <laughs> lights, him spiraling down the building. It's weird because Jimmy Stewart, it's the outline of Jimmy Stewart, clearly. And it's just like, man, like Jimmy Stewart's frame is really good for like blocky 
like 60s expressionist yeah, drawings right. like it's, <laughs> i am the perfect model for this like the anatomy of a murder poster that's yeah. me i just i just did a day well, of work he's also wearing those suits though and they made those suits with like the big shoulder pads yeah. so everything came out square Every, everything yeah. looks like you're like a blockhead in a gumby episode <laughs> <laughs> like it and, and it, it it but that dream sequence is it still looks amazing if you yeah. watch it on blu-ray like the 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 4k restoration is the one that i believe is on the recent blu-rays um and the the colors look amazing it's a it's a a dedicated commitment to uh, an art film an art house sequence in a mainstream movie and it's uh martin scorsese's pointed out that this movie is very unique in the respect that it's it's extremely personal but it's done with big stars with a big budget for the time like it and it it is kind of unprecedented like it, we get passion projects nowadays and whatnot, but you don't see them by like the big, big, big studios. Like I'm talking like Warner oh, yeah. Brothers, Paramount. Because every movie made now has to have so much money put into it that it needs to make so much money back that no one can afford to do a passion project yeah. with that much money, especially when you're trying to make all your money from China, you know? <laughs> see the Star Wars Rise of Skywalker in theaters still. <laughs> um, so he's... He's trying to get over this nonsense, and he's walking down the street, and what does he see but a brunette that looks all too familiar, wearing a green dress, follows her around, follows her back to the Empire Hotel. This is the problem. Detective at work. (laughs) But this is the thing. She never left the place that he clearly saw her at. Yeah. She knows. I think that uh, Gavin must not have thought that far ahead. He yeah, you tell her like, oh, and also you need to move out of the city when we're done with this. Yeah, you can't <laughs> like look, you, J- Judy, you can't stay in the same. Pl- I know you like the. What interior if I just decoration. undye my hair? No, 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 no. I, I look, I get it. You like the wallpaper in this room, but that is not the way this is going to go down. You need to get out of. Fuck you. You're leaving me. Why should I leave? Fine. You know what? Fine. Okay. Get us all yeah, caught. There you go. There's I the can. backstory we all missed. I'll go to. I'll go to. A, I'll go to a little weekend in Tijuana while you figure this out. <laughs> when uh, I come back, you better be gone. <laughs> <laughs> so he follows her up, and. You know, the beginning of this second story is very much a man trying to uh, recapture and recreate a dead love. And um, this is almost what's funny is it is kind of a ghost story. Yeah, really. Yeah, I'll go one word further. Necrophilia. Yeah. Uh, And he's haunted. Yeah. (laughs) It's and it uh, actually the the Truffaut and Hitchcock interview, like they pointed out that it is there's an element of necrophilia to it because of the way he's trying to possess this woman that's gone yeah and uh it was never there to begin with never there to begin with that's that's and, and now he's trying to reincarnate a false reincarnation yeah you know? <laughs> it's much like a mummy mo- see yeah. i can make a mummy Actually, movie <laughs> <laughs> but i all this stuff is what i think is so interesting about the movie is yeah. like the weird layers of psychology and you're like what are you what is wrong with you? you're trying to recreate something that was never there yeah. to begin uh, with yeah. it's 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 very much like the illusion that you're that you're so sure was real like you can't get it out of your head like, yeah what you've convinced yourself has ended up be consuming you in a darker way and he goes up there and he he's thoroughly convinced that it's just like she just looks very much like her but it's it's taking him aback so he goes up to her apartment and you know rightfully so she's just like hey creep don't <laughs> you can't come in no like that's ew <laughs> but he's just like no i'll just I want to talk to you. I'll I'll leave the door open and everything. And you know she lets him in, and 
she kind of starts conceding because she's just like, well, you don't look much like Jack the Ripper. <laughs> and I was like, hold up, hold the brakes here. No one knows what he looks like because he was never caught. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, no, that's true. Not true. <laughs> Cary Grant was the Ripper. That, that's the fun fact. Cary Grant, a charming star, also killed London prostitutes. <laughs> Nobody knows it because nobody wants to talk about it. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart, though, clean as a whistle. No priors whatsoever. Um, <laughs> I just have an image now of Cary Grant as Jack the Ripper, <laughs> and it's terrifying me. <laughs> um, so, But he's just like, well, let me buy a dinner for inconveniencing you with my obsessive and creepy questions. Um, and then... Within that, we what get, a way to get a date! Anyways. Yeah, <laughs> dude, yeah, dude, I've made you so uncomfortable. Hey, would you like to have dinner with me? Hey, <laughs> I, it's the fifties, man. You're allowed to be that creepy jerk. Like that's it's <laughs> redonkulous. Like, and it's weird. Like when you watch it through a modern lens, most films have this problem of just like, man, leave her alone, give her space. Oh, yeah, <laughs> our generation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we we even like that's why. I mean, films. Films have progressed because we are much more considerate of people's personal space. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, like I watching an older film, like you have to always take into account, like this is the time and the period. There are certain times where you just can't do it. Like I can't do it with a certain film that was mentioned as a better best picture winner in a recent tweet, which I will <laughs> not go into because I'm not going to address stupid things. <laughs> That, least of all about stupid movies. Um, uh, watch Parasite, guys. But um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, she he leaves and she uh, through through uh, through no dialogue at first. We suddenly realize she is Madeline, and then we get the audible explanation, which yes. is. I am Madeline. Yes, then you get her confession to the audience, almost to just be like, just in case you guys were still confused, this is not a supernatural Yeah. Story. Now, here's the thing, though. It does seem like it's it's weird to play that card, but not for Hitchcock, because he's done this before. He will give you information that a character knows, and you, the audience, will know, but our main character won't. Right, He's trying to because he wants to create that dramatic irony. And that tension and that yeah. suspense of like... That only works if you have... If you know who knows what information and who doesn't. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the bomb under the theory that was first established in Sabotage and has been utilized in virtually every Hitchcock film since. And, you know, I mean, there is a, there's a quote I have here, which is Hitchcock said, like, well, I didn't blow up a child this time. I This time, I just made it about Jimmy Stewart looking at jewelry. <laughs> Are you happy now? <laughs> just looking at jewelry. Yeah, just looking at jewelry. No, no dead kids. No <laughs> dead kids. Um, so the, uh, though the date goes on and. Moment by moment, Jimmy Stewart is becoming more and more obsessed with recreating this image. Um, he basically, it's uh, it kind of gaslights her a little bit, into, yeah. not a little it's, bit, a lot of bit. <laughs> I actually, I mean, this may be a little weird, but I, when I first saw this scene, though, it was funny to me. <laughs> Uh, like it's almost comical to me how far, if, if you were in that situation, it'd be kind of terrifying. Yeah, but exactly. Just, but in my cultural context, seeing this, like to me, I'm like, who would do this? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just like, this is nuts. It's it's <laughs> it's so strange. Like, and it's weird. Like, if we want to look at a modern uh, allusion to it, if you watch Phantom Thread, it operates on that level intensely for a majority of the film up until. Spoiler alert! So <laughs> she keeps poisoning his food, and it's great. And it's yeah. watch Phantom Thread. It's wonderful. Oh. Daniel Day Lewis won't do anything else, guys. This is it. You got to watch it. I haven't now. even heard of this movie. Oh, it's great. It's Paul is Thomas. It new? It's Paul Thomas Anderson. He did it in 2017. Oh, okay. and it's Daniel Day Lewis's last movie. Oh, and he plays a dressmaker who um, 
uh, is obsessed over. He he falls in love and is obsessed with a woman, and it's very Hitchcocky. Okay. Um, to to a alarming degree yeah, sometimes, right. but I love it. <laughs> um, and uh, maybe some homage. It's actually, and it's also really funny, <laughs> but it's not like it's the kind of humor that Paul Thomas Anderson does. Yeah. Where you're just like, this is dark, but I'm laughing yeah, my butt off. Quirky right and... Yeah, very much like Daniel Day Lewis, you know, just talking about milkshakes. Like it's hilarious. Yeah. Um. So he starts recreating Madeline. Uh, but and, like forcibly, yeah. Not, forcibly, like, he's, he's like, you gotta walk right. You yeah. gotta have this color. You need this color suit. This style. Yeah. So well, at first, I was just a crippled detective, and now I'm a fucking monster. Yeah. <laughs> like, but okay. So here's the other side of it. He's like doing all this stuff to her, but she's going along with it. Yeah, because she's because she's like, oh, but I do want him to like you know, and I'm just like, you're both putting yourselves in weird. <laughs> yeah, and it's it, it's weird. Like I, I I it's it's interesting because on the Psycho episode, we talked a lot about how. Uh, things are used to justify certain character actions, whereas from a modern context, we look at this as disgusting. Right. Um, in in the the way it's validated, quote unquote, is because she played a trick on him before, so yes. she gets to do this, which I feel like was a very common mentality. Yeah, that, like it's sort of an antiquated way of thinking now. Yeah, where it's oh, it's okay when bad things happen to bad people. That you know, when somebody does something bad to someone else, it, it's them getting their comeuppance. An you know? And it's like, but eye. sometimes you go a little too far. And yeah, maybe I even sometimes I even have sympathy for I, the bad person. When I'm like, that's a little far. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's uh, there's and and another modern illusion is like if you watch uh, uh, the Skin I Live In by Pedro Almodovar. I do know this one. That yes. is a that yeah. is that concept. That's a disturbing take, movie. That's taken to the extreme. <laughs> yeah. and uh, it's a, it's a great horror movie. Wonderful oh, yeah. horror movie. Um, but so yeah, but in, like obviously by today's standards and just even in general, you should be looking at this and going like, "Oh, Jimmy Stewart's going way too far." Yeah. Like he is very much not that same nice young man who stood up to the Senate and Mister Smith goes to Washington. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't want this guy as my congressman. <laughs> well, I am your fucking congressman now. <laughs> and you're all gonna dress and act a certain way. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna make America great again. Yeah. <laughs> It's a uh, oh, yeah. It's uh, oh. terrifying that that almost is kind of the yeah. <laughs> the mentality there. Yeah, but that is the mentality exactly. You know? And it's when the, they, it's that gaslighting. This attempt to return to that exactly. Oh, and so <laughs> she gets made over all the way. She finally comes back dressed up, but there's one detail missing. It's the hair. Mm -hmm. The hair is not done. So he on that spiral bun. Yeah. So she <laughs> goes back into the to the changing room to uh, do the hair correctly. And Hitchcock in the interview with Truffaut described this as uh, the com he compared it to a woman uh, undressing, but not taking off her knickers. And that when uh, he tells her to change the hair, it's the equivalent of him saying, go to the room and undress and then come out fully ready for me. Which, when you hear it in the interview, it's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, it, but, it, but it is. It's, it's when not, she's yeah. like, I am doing the final thing yeah. that needs to be done Ex to become this woman you've been trying to make me be. <laughs> exactly. And it's, and it's weird because it's like it, we talk a lot about when it comes to older films about how sex is portrayed on screen but not on screen where it's whether it's you know that my favorite one is just the camera pans away to a flower vase on a on a shelf or something like that or some kind of thing that alludes to they're gonna do it yeah like, uh, the camera can't show you this hitchcock did a great <laughs> hit it did it masterfully where he's just like okay at the end um uh 
uh, Eva Marie, you're going to be going up into Cary Grant's bed, and I'm going to cut away to a big train going through a big hole. Like, big, big train, big hole. Big train, big hole. <laughs> it, it's, I'm surprised it's she didn't. It's a penis. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm surprised she didn't find that insulting. Where yeah. She's like, you couldn't have used a smaller tunnel? No. <laughs> <laughs> How? What are you trying to say? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I'm a man, and I'm, I'm dumb. <laughs> um, so, but, so she's fully, the image is complete. She exits the changing room and into his uh, life again as Madeline from a there's a there's a lot of mist used in this film like a, like a cloudy kind of visage like it's it's a haunted city yeah. it's very much the noir effect of this film because it is in daylight you can't do those striking shadows per se but he creates the atmosphere of noir through stuff like um uh frost frost filters to kind of create this haze and mm-hmm. she reemerges much like a ghost yes that's coming out of the past yeah and like so, it's a it's a non supernatural ghost story. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's... And then we kind of move into, uh, you know, like he's uh, when he embraces her and kisses her, the camera pans around and there's very much a, you know, a, a panoramic effect of going through all the different places they had been when they first met. That leads back to the apartment, and so they're together. Jimmy Stewart's like, I, I, I manipulated her and got what I want. Yeah. <laughs> now I have my perfect woman again. I guess it all worked out for Jimmy, except it doesn't because <laughs> she uh, is getting ready to go out and she puts on a piece of jewelry that once was owned by Carlotta. And that jewelry that Carlotta owned was then owned by Madeline many years later. It's jewelry that she didn't utilize until suddenly she started to when she thought that she was the ghost of Madeline. That's when he starts putting the pieces together that there was no Carlotta curse. That <laughs> and this that was... this woman is actually the woman. Yeah, <laughs> and then he's like, hey, I've been had. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn it, I'm the patsy. <laughs> I, 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 Jimmy Stewart can't be a patsy. <laughs> hitch, 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 come here. <laughs> Am I a fool here? <laughs> you take me for a fool? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And that's why you have to... The Hitchcock voice is changing. Jimmy, you have... <laughs> You're trying Jimmy, to do too. I get it. Jimmy, you have to... Jimmy, you have to be the fool. That's the only way that it makes... You, but Jimmy's story ain't no fool. Like, in, in Rear Window, I called it a mile away. <laughs> I told you. I'm not a fool. I'm the man who shot Liberty Valance. <laughs> <laughs> Or did I? I'm, <laughs> I'm the man. I'm the man who used logic and reason to not throw myself off of a bridge because an angel told me to. <laughs> um, so he uh, he starts formulating in his head uh, what the issue. They're going to go out to drive to a restaurant. He's like, "Let's go out far off town." And they're clearly going further than expected. And he's just like, "I just want to drive." And they get back to the mission, and he's just and he throws her words back in her face of like, "I've just got to do one more thing, and then I'll be rid of the past." And <laughs> Uh, he he confronts her while leading her up yeah. the tower, well, like dragging her up the steps. Right? Isn't yeah, like her and he's like, "Come on!" Dra- <laughs> dragging her and then kind of just saying, "Now walk, walk, yeah. like dance, monkey." You know, like and yeah. then she, like he's been doing the whole past and, thirty minutes. You know? Yeah, and he looks down and realizes that his vertigo has gone. Like I beat it, I beat. It. <laughs> See, you just got to face your demons. Yeah, what I, <laughs> see what I tell you. You just got to manipulate a woman into looking the way you want. Realize she's a scam artist, and the, then. <laughs> The trick is when you get so mad, your you, the other th- your inhibitions just go away. <laughs> <laughs> 
so it's like hey, you know, I used to be afraid of spiders but then I was just like walking through a flaming garden and then I, the spiders around me that were scurrying didn't bother me <laughs> right. um, so he, he leads her up to the top of the tower where he fully confronts it she confesses and there it's basically that she still loves him and even though she knows that she's been had and she's basically driven to the madness that she was faking the first time. So the second movie And does she throw herself off again? No. Okay. So this is a this is a series of just like her being driven so insane by this by this by this Stockholm syndrome <laughs> complex combined with a lot of gaslighting and attempts to please a man who's obsessed with yeah. the image of another woman. The attempts to please two men. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to, attempts to please Jimmy Stewart <laughs> and Jimmy Stewart. Well, I was going to say and Gavin originally. And, and, and Gavin you know, originally. Because I imagine yeah. she got involved in yeah, the plot through she, the same situation yeah because yeah. she gets she, she's manipulated by her into creating the image of carlotta that yeah. he wants or the, so i'm uh, sure he was like you wants. look like my wife yeah. i can make you look like my wife yeah and then, so by she, the way i've already killed my wife she, she, <laughs> i don't know if you know spoiler alert i broke her fucking neck because she doesn't because she doesn't go out to the country she doesn't come into town that much she's usually in the country um and so but though they're confronting they kind of embrace but she is frightened when she sees a figure approaching that looks like it could be somebody disguised that's going to finish the job. We assume it's Gavin, but then uh, you hear the sounds of a nun going, I heard voices, mm. and she just falls right off that mission building. And Jimmy Stewart walks out onto the ledge, his vertigo cured, looking down at what his obsession had cost him. So it's... That's right. She doesn't die on t on purpose. Yeah. It, it, well, but... It, it, but isn't she though? Isn't she dead yeah. on purpose? Well, I mean, she didn't kill herself. No, but 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 the madness is yeah. what drives her right. to react the way she does. That fall, so she falls yeah. off the building, and the nun rings the bell, and it's uh, we end the end of Paramount release uh, yeah. in this division. <laughs> Fucking cut! Uh, let's go to the bar and discuss what we just saw. <laughs> this is my film club. <laughs> um, fun fact, though, you were talking about Midge uh, not having really any completion. Yeah, because again, she kind of disappears there. After so there's another ending to the movie. Okay, uh, there right. is an alternate ending that was. Um, there's a rumor, and uh, like legend has it that this was made to appease foreign censorship boards. Um, in actuality, this ending was requested on multiple occasions by Jeffrey Sherlock of the U.S. Censor Board because he wanted to make it clear that Gavin didn't get away with it. Mm. Uh, and eventually, uh, they shot the alternate scene, uh, which uh, in which Midge listens to the radio and it's revealed via the radio that Gavin uh, will be extradited and will be brought to justice. And then Jimmy Stewart comes back into Midge's apartment. She pours him a drink and they just kind of stare off into the, the sky at the end. Still not really an ending to her story or no, anything. But, she, but she's at the <laughs> end of the movie. Yeah, she's there one more time. I think it's insinuated that he's like, well, I, the, the blonde didn't work out, but you with the glasses will do. Right. <laughs> Let's get you a gray you're suit. You're once left. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I guess we, we did make that pact that if we weren't married in 30 years, we'd marry each other. <laughs> um, so, but that was the ending. But it, it, was, it was shot and it, it was recently rediscovered, but like it was never intended to be the actual ending. Like yeah. Jeff, Alfred Hitchcock did work the censor boards to the bore to the bone. Like there's a story about him saying like, well, okay, I'll reshoot um, the opening scene of psycho so that it's not so lustful and it's a little bit more presentable. And he didn't change anything. Yeah. You know, right? They brought they he invited Jeffrey Sherlock to be on the set 
and to supervise it. And then they they were all set up for the day, but they were going to reshoot it. And Jeffrey Sherlock never showed up. They called it a day, and that was it. Because gotcha. Sherlock just didn't make any more objections, so they released Psycho as it was. Oh, so, okay, all right, all right. So this, uh, so he was able to more often than not, he got his way in in an interesting way. Like even yeah. though it's, I mean, nobody was exempt from those boards, regardless of reputation. Like you were, you were beholden to those boards for a reason. Well, and it was important to the industry because yeah. they were worried that if people kept, because I mean, movies were. We think, you know, people look at movies now and they're like, movies are so violent now, and it's like, well, movies have gotten to the way they are. I've gotten to where people have always wanted to make them yeah. at this point because people people didn't censor themselves because they were clean and lighthearted. Yeah. People censored themselves because they were worried the government was going to get involved with regulating films. And yeah. so they put together a code to be like, yo, if we stick to this shit, the government should let us yeah. do our own thing. And it was initially the Hayes Code and yeah. then it spread into... Uh, uh, a, a, a national censor board, but also states had their own individual censor boards. In fact, a lot of state states in the South, and this isn't to, you know, like the South, like had like mm. there was a like a an even deeper sense of those morality values that they that yes. se- those censors possess. The great irony of the South. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but but regardless, you know, th- there are there are uh, rope had censorship in the South because of the implication that. Um, uh, uh, Philip and Brandon were homosexuals, so there's a uh, there's a lot that's trimmed from uh, that release of Rope. So um, Vertigo though goes untouched. Um, it's received with mixed reviews. <laughs> um, I like reading some of these reviews, and I, my favorite, of course, is my sworn em- enemy Bosley Crowther. Um, but <laughs> he he gave it a positive review and explained that the secret of the film is so clever even though it is devilishly far-fetched. So, you know, he's Bosley Crowther was one to, you know, throw you a punch, even though he was giving you a kiss at the same time. Backhanded compliments. Yeah. Um, the Los Angeles Times uh, had a review where they're like, they admired the scenery, but they found the plot too long, and it felt bogged down, and it's uh, too much detail. Yeah, to I which, mean, it is a convoluted plot, it which is. I think is also why I like it. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that the detail that's around it, like, one, that's intentional because that's Hitchcock, but two, it, it adds to the dimensions of this film, like, and it and again since it, it stems from the noir plot that's like common yeah noir yeah like, just get rid of my wife yeah you the know? maze of everything trying to find the truth but really there was like pretty clear yeah know? exactly yeah. like I mean, it's short of Jimmy Stewart like chugging down a built of scotch in some dingy office like <laughs> it's a detective movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, that would be great. <laughs> like, I'd love to see him. Like, I walked into my office thinking I would have no excitement today when all of a sudden Kim Novak walked through the door. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's a lot of uh, uh, mixed reviews. And uh, uh, there was a big res- there was a uh, uh, th- there's th- there's a reevaluation over time. This is a film by Hitchcock. That is slowly but surely regarded as a masterpiece, and it comes over time. A lot of it thanks to people like Francois Truffaut who really promote the works of Hitchcock and specifically the artistry that goes behind his craft. Uh, Since then, it has been regarded as his masterpiece. This film was shelved for a long time, wasn't re-released until 1984 uh, with the Hitchcock Five, um, and the film elements were faded completely, like very faded, and there's... um, uh, featurette on the Blu-ray or DVD, whichever you have, that shows you a side-by-side of what the film looked like in the 80s versus what they did in 1996 to restore this film. Um, the restoration, I want to bring this up because I do think that the important there there's importance to the restoration of this piece. 
the 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 two people responsible for this, Robert A. Harris and James C. Katz, um, they were given over a million dollars by Universal in the '90s to restore this film. Took over a year to do. Um, they restored a lot of the color that was initially in this film. Uh, followed meticulously by Hitchcock's notes that they still had possession of. They redid the st- they used the original stereo track and found elements. They had to do recreation of some foley, which is what you do see in a lot of restorations of films. Right, some foley is lost because of just time. But unlike a lot of them, Hitchcock, because he's so detailed, he had dubbing notes. <laughs> of course he did. Yeah, I was Why surprised when he? you just said he had color notes. Yeah, <laughs> it's so okay. it's so weird because like I mean like you know you and I know Brad Haig you know he's very he's such attention to detail and he'll make a document for everything whether it's the podcast or stuff like that and hit and he doesn't like get the work of Hitchcock and I'm just like because it's you <laughs> it's, you've, you've got the methodical process yeah got, and then that's when you know I mean Brad's gonna start you know bulging out a little bit <laughs> then I'd like to think of it uh, it's a phenomenon I call Highlander syndrome. <laughs> Which is when there's somebody who's too much like you, you don't gel with them because so, there can be only one. So you're saying, <laughs> so you're saying that when Brad was born, he killed Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> I like this theory. Yes, Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, Brad is the reincarnation of Alfred Hitchcock, and so that's, <laughs> so that's why he always says good evening whenever I go up to him. Like Brad, I had no idea. Yeah, and he likes to stand profile when he looks at you. you yes, <laughs> yeah. That's why you know we went to go see Psycho at a cereal party at the Alamo, and he wasn't impressed with it. I'm like, oh, it's because now I know why. It's because he's judging his own work. <laughs> He's like, I could have done better. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, you think you could have done better? And he's like, no, no, I mean, like, I, I should have done this better than I, I did it. I, I, <laughs> me, me only. Hello. I'm, I'm not British because I was born in the U.S., but the spirit is willing to admit who I actually am. Um, and uh, But, yeah, so that's that's kind of the wrap-up on Vertigo. I, I mean, other than the fact that this movie kind of breaks uh, even. It doesn't really do well for them. Uh, uh uh, financially initially but it through re-releases and whatnot it kind of heightens the growth the long-term game <laughs> yeah exactly the avatar game you yeah. know where you just keep holding a record that you have no right to keep holding <laughs> like well i think the real trick is to be a studio <laughs> who finds talented artists and gets them to make a bunch of stuff that isn't appreciated while they're alive so you don't have to pay them too much and then after they die, you hype it when you own the rights, and then it starts making you a bunch of money, right? That's w- watch that's the, the Disney method, right? W- well, <laughs> that, and, you know, watch The Other Side of the Wind, Orson Welles' final film that he I never did. got to watch completed. I, I did watch it. I actually thought the documentary about it was more interesting than the movie itself. Oh, <laughs> you know, it's actually funny because, uh, well, Welles is one of two subjects that I may want to do next, and The Other Side of the Wind is a very interesting conversation because I like that movie okay. as, as it stands. I agree with you, though. Yeah. <laughs> the documentary is much more interesting because it's it's a rare redemption for Wells okay. because it's very easy to pinpoint him as an egomaniacal monster to a degree. <laughs> but you watch a man basically not being able to play in the sandbox that the filmmakers who were inspired by him get to play in. Mm-hmm. And Hitchcock went through the same thing. Hitchcock you know, wanted to be able to make a film like Francois Truffaut or... Um, uh, the other filmmakers that were really burgeoning in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. But he, unlike Wells, Wells was willing to really push it. Hitchcock still maintained a lot of what made his films his, sometimes to a detrimental degree. If you watch Torn Curtain, the problem with Torn Curtain is that it's relying on old methodology and not trying to push anything further. When he does Frenzy, it gets the closest to becoming a new wave film because of how it pushes the boundaries of violence 
But then he does Family Plot as his final movie, and it's very much a Hitchcock, tiny little caper mystery, whatever. So, but yeah, that wraps up Vertigo, a um, uh, a film with a lot of layers, as as Will said, and just it's one that you can continue to explore and digest uh, throughout Hitchcock's uh, career. Uh, out of all the films he made, Vertigo is the one that probably says the most about Hitchcock. Um, specifically with the obsession over creating a star. I wanted to bring this up before it's all said and done. Kim Novak's part of Madeline and Judy was originally to be played by Vera Miles. Vera Miles, um, known primarily for The Wrong Man and Psycho in the Hitchcock canon, also in the first episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, she was one of many stars that Hitchcock uh, put under contract to basically put through his star-molding system. Uh, which involved a lot of obsession and uh, uh, possessiveness. I was good. So this is a thing I'm unfamiliar with. Did, did he have a tendency to do that? He'd find people who were like unknowns and then make them big. Yeah, he was. That was kind of his uh, mold, his molding process. Was uh, he would instantly... and this is what he referred to it as yeah. a molding process. Well, he, he referred to it as <laughs> like I'm going to make you a star. But, okay, but you want to be a star, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> it, that's that's you know it it and it's. It's sad because it's the bottom line is, is that he took a lot of that obsession too far, mm-hmm. especially with Tippi Hedren. And, you know, it's a shame that Tippi Hedren had to go through the monstrous actions of somebody like Hitchcock. So it's kind of like he's like, I see a lot of potential in you and I can make you big. But he's also like, but I want you. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's very much that that is, that is the definition of it. Um, if you want more info on it, read Donald Spoto's book, The Hitchcock, The Dark Side of Genius. He really <laughs> okay. talks about it. Um, and Tippi Hedren's been very vocal um, over the years about the abuse that she suffered under Hitchcock while still, you know, maintaining a level of respect for him as a filmmaker. But it's 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 totally clear that Hitchcock was a monster to her mm-hmm. um, with Vera Miles. Um, there was a lot of pushing into that territory. But Vera Miles, uh, uh, it's it seems from all record backed off and uh, told him to back off a lot more. But she was supposed to be Melanie. She did early makeup tests, and she was actually posed for the original Carlotta painting um, before she got pregnant. Mm. And she got pregnant just as they were about to start filming, so she wouldn't. She couldn't do the movie. And Hitchcock was pissed, mm-hmm. pissed, 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 pissed. <laughs> so he gets Kim Novak instead, and and he he's does, never really happy about it. Yeah, and yeah. he he puts Vera Miles in. Psycho primarily because she had one more film in her contract and he could exercise that for Psycho, which was a low budget movie to begin with. So it's like, well, I have to start a contract. She's owed one. I owe her. She owes me one more picture. Bring mm-hmm. this person in to be Lila Crane. Um, so but there there's a process that Vera Miles goes through that is very uh, like a, 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 an example of what is to come with somebody like Tippi Hedren. Grace Kelly went through this mold as well, but Grace Kelly stood as an independent on her own two feet. Right. Um, and, you know, and, and amongst the people who suffer for Hitchcock's actions in this regard are people like Alma, his wife, who was a tirelessly devoted woman to his craft and to her craft as well as a filmmaker. Right. Um, but with Vertigo, you do see a lot of the allusion to who he was as a filmmaker and who he was as a person, albeit through the lens of attempted justification of actions by people. Like the second half of Vertigo is an attempt to justify what happens in that second half. Or, yeah, the first half. Yeah, the first half. In fact, it's almost like the first half of the movie is, now that I know all these things about Hitchcock, it's almost like the first 
hour of the movie is there just so that the second half you're on Jimmy Stewart's side while he's doing all that weird shit. And it's very, very manipulative in that (laughs) respect. This is a case where so much of him is put into it that it gets a little convoluted. An audience of the era, it's totally understandable that they wouldn't love this movie compared to, say, North by Northwest. Like, North by Northwest has Hitchcock in it, but it also has other things going on in it. Right. This is working off of Hitchcock's brain, whether he uh, fully admits it or not. But one thing is for certain, he was proud of the movie. He was proud that it gained a reputation over time. And it's a film that we'll continue to discuss, for, for better or for worse. Modern critics have a problem with this film Rightfully so, because of the way it handles the obsessive over the uh, molding of clay with a woman. And, you know, there's there's ways to di- dissect it and uh, approach it. Yeah. Um, we're, and, we're in a very strange place. Uh, culturally. Culturally, yeah. with the way people analyze things right now, where yeah. the analysts themselves can't seem to separate themselves from what they're analyzing. Yeah. And they're like, I hate this thing because it goes against my values. And it's like, well that thing doesn't necessarily have the values it's displaying to you. It's just showing them to you. And if you're getting that reaction, that may be what they're going for, but that doesn't mean it's bad because it talked about something that makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. (laughs) I think we're, we're in a, we're in an interesting reckoning period with pop culture that has been cemented as legendary. And it's also like, just how, how do we view, view films of the past 80 years later, as opposed to 50 years later, there's a difference between gone with the wind, reputation in the 80s and its reputation today i won't talk about the donald trump oh sorry that's what you're talking about okay my bad i won't bring it no, up no then. no no we, <laughs> oh no we can i will just say that i've never liked gone with the wind i can acknowledge that it is a technical masterpiece in terms of craftsmanship i have not seen the movie but i hear it's like four hours long and I, the plot sounds like something i don't care about. It, it, it's 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 about it's about remember it's about it's about people trying to glorify how beautiful the south was and how it's a shame that it was ruined and i'm like by the civil war by right? the civil war yeah. yeah okay um like it's it's very much like oh the good old days were gone with the wind but we're gonna remember them in this four hours someday we could make america great again yeah. sorry sorry i didn't want to take i took it too political my bad <laughs> um I mean, it's also the fact, like, I mean, I have I have two copies of it because regardless of Gone with the Winds as a film, I go back to the extras on those DVDs, like those big sets, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of info on Vivian Lee, Olivia de Havilland, Clark Gable, essential right. information. You that want I the would, information, I want not the information. the movie I could, a, I could give a shit about the movie. Yeah. I really could. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, I... I, every so often I rewatch it to be like, do I still hate this movie? And the answer is always yes. So, um, <laughs> But anyway, that uh, that's a wrap on Hitchcock uh, and Vertigo. Um, you know, Will, do you have anything you want to plug before we uh, leave and depart the world of Vertigo? I guess uh, I got, if anyone is interested in doing some late night karaoke, that's uh, that's this Saturday from do 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. at Denver Open Media. Well, this may be coming out a little bit later. But, oh, well, uh, then never mind. Cut that, <laughs> cut that plug out of there. Is there anything you'd want to plug for the long term? Man, I... Uh, I don't think I have any long-term projects to plug. <laughs> then I will. Then I will plug you in general. Keep an eye out for Will Elder on the Denver scene. Uh, he's doing many things and getting a lot of shit done and kicking ass. And go to the Denver Open Media before it changes in nine months into something different. Yeah. Find a way to make a film there. Make a remake Vertigo. I don't care. <laughs> 
Make put your own obsessions in there. Figure it out. <laughs> Want to remake Gone with the Wind? Sure, that sounds stupid, but okay. <laughs> uh, but thank you, Will, for coming down for the day to chat a little bit about Vertigo. Um, uh, this has been the Shamley Silhouette for this week. Uh, we come out twice a month at this point because twice a week is hard to uphold. Um, if you want more information on the Shamley Silhouette, go to realnerdspodcast.com and you can find our back episodes, uh, the first couple of articles. More articles will be coming uh, down the line. Uh, and you can also find us on Instagram at the Shamley Silhouette. I made it difficult so that only the truest fans can find it. <laughs> uh, and uh, on the next episode, it's going to be a surprise. Uh, but until uh, then, this has been the Shamley Silhouette. Uh, until next time, good night. No. I heard voices. God have mercy. <laughs>